Oh, God, you guys know me. You know that I can't get enough of your attention. You know that I got to I got to make you laugh. Um, I'm, I'm born to do it. I live for it. Uh, tour dates are not going to be for a little while, but June 28th, 2024, I'm going to be in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Warner Theater. And July 6th, 2024, I'm going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada at the Mirage. I know this is some of y'all are Virgo, anal retentive OCD nightmares like me, and you like to plan ahead. So see you soon. If I don't die in childbirth, I'll be there. I have a special called Mouthy. It's my sixth special. It's out. It's on of.tv slash Whitney. It's free. OFTV. It's not the OnlyFans subscription side. We're going to see a bunch of birth canals, although I may live stream my birth on OnlyFans TV. I think it's a pretty good idea. OF.TV slash Whitney. It's out now. It's called Mouthy. It's where we did the roast of Burt Kreischer and me. Enjoy it. Uh. Bap, bap, bap. Oh, hello, everyone. Today's a very special Good For You University episode with psychiatrist Dr. Paul Conti. He wrote a book called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, and he spends most of his time keeping some of your favorite celebrities alive. You know how much I love conning therapists into coming on this podcast so that y'all can have access to some of the most brilliant minds in the world, and I can secretly get free therapy. This is a very long one, but it is very worth it. Uh, you know that with the Good For You episodes, I try to make the show that I wish had been available to me back when I was in my 20s, when I couldn't afford therapy or healthcare or Scientology or any cults for that matter. Trust me, I tried. You also know that in the Good For You University episodes, I do try to restrain myself from being too much of a silly goose because I don't want serious guests to have to do bits with me. They don't deserve that. But Brace yourself. We do cover some serious topics in this episode, but that's okay because there's nothing funny about being a goddamn mess. So take notes, absorb what he says, and heal yourself because those maladaptive behaviors you're working with, they might be cute now. They might be adorable in your 20s, but I promise you, as soon as you turn 30, it's a bummer. Drinking too much now might be working for you like a charm, sweet pea. You might be a big hit at Senior Frogs in Tampa, but as soon as you turn 30, just makes people sad. Okay. Hot tip. Also, those amaretto sours pickle your eggs. That's true science. Okay. Hitting that vape may seem like all fun and games now until one day it stops being a choice. And all of a sudden you're rummaging through your kid's backpack to steal his vape. And then you realize it's not your kid's backpack because you don't even have a kid. You just broke into a school to steal vapes from children. And now you're on a list. All because you didn't listen to this episode about trauma and addiction and how to manage your maladaptive behaviors and shame, because that'll get you. Please enjoy this Good For You University episode with the great Dr. Paul Conti. Okay, here with Dr. Paul Conti. Thank you for asking me to be here. What an honor. Um, What so far can you deduce about my mental state based on this podcast studio? (laughs) I can, I can tell that you have a very active mind. There's, there's no doubt about that. that your, your attention uh, is cast over a wide variety of interesting things. That's, That's one say. way of saying you're a hoarder, but thank you. <laughs> Not quite. I can walk through. I can walk around it. It's okay. It's okay. Because I always had this theory that when you go into a psychiatrist's office or a therapist's office, anything that was on the table was like a bait to uh-huh. see if the patient would play with it or something. Uh, and 
Uh-huh. Is that true? Or did I make that up? You know, some people may do that. Usually it's just an insight into my own disorganization or something about me that's probably un- unintended. Um, <laughs> but yeah, probably that happens sometimes. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't do it. Like there's um, like I went to a therapist's office once and there was like a waiting room and there was like a Zen garden uh-huh. of sand with a little rake, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, and I started like raking it and like cleaning it up, <laughs> like, cause someone had raked it before and made it bad and I'm like cleaning it and I'm like I feel like I got my money's worth just in that moment. That's right. There's a camera on you and someone's scrawling on the other it side. It felt that I, I needed to clean someone else's mess up here uh-huh. with the sand. And then I was right. like, let me mess it up again so she doesn't think I'm neurotic. And I was like, you know, I don't even know if I need to go in there. I just, me in this little bucket of sand. You got what you needed, Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. looking in a mirror. Yeah. Um, did you leave with the bucket of sand? I, I, I did not leave with the bucket of sand. I did not. Yeah. And I stole it also and put it on eBay. So I'm an entrepreneur. See, now I'm fishing for, for information about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. See, that was very sneaky. Um, I've uh, really enjoyed listening to you on Lex and Huberman and um, Rich Thank Roll. You. And as I always just like to preface, um, if this is their first, your first time hearing uh, Paul talk, uh, we're going to be going in a little bit of a different direction than they went because I don't want him to have to repeat himself. And I want to mine you for as much as I possibly can of information oh, maybe we haven't heard or a perspective we haven't heard. So you. Um, you are, of course, the foremost expert on trauma. Um, if you have not read The Invisible Epidemic, his book, please do. I loved Thank it you. so much for a litany of reasons. Number one, you just have this ability to say things in a succinct yet elegant way that makes my brain absorb it and not resist it. Thank you. Also, the interviews are so great. It's broken up with interviews and questions to prompt yourself. And as someone that I felt like I wasn't really making a ton of progress in the uh, changes that I wanted to make in my psyche until I dug into the 12 steps of a 12 step Mm -hmm. program of Mm -hmm. having to self-reflect and write things down and hold a mirror up to myself instead Mm -hmm. of like, let me just memorize how to be healthy. Let me just memorize how trauma works. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but if you're not getting specific about your own blueprint and constellation, you're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. those were awesome. Thank you so much. I, I so appreciate that that you got so much out of it and, and you're very kind in your description of it. Thank you. Great. So let's talk about foot fetishes. Okay. Um. <laughs> That's a chapter. I thought we left that chapter out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I it is I I, I want to talk about lots of, you know, different things in this area. Shame is something I wanted to bring up. Uh-huh. Um there it is a recurring theme on this podcast of me trying to guess the origin of foot fetishes okay. <laughs> and fetishes uh, in general. So okay. we don't have to dig into that one. But um, curious. Uh, you we know. can if you want, though. There's, cool. There are interesting answers to that, too. So Great. I don't, I don't know that I'm going to have the answer, look like but I have dicks? an opinion. <laughs> That's what Freud said. I don't know if I agree with him on that. On that, <laughs> but, there, but there are thoughts about that. Uh-huh. You talk about anything you anything you want to talk about? Yeah, I think that um, shame in general, uh, you know, is something that is worth talking about. Of course, being the engine of addiction, um, in a lot of ways. But also, like, I like to sometimes talk about the positive side of negative things. Like, when we go like, I need to get rid of all the shame. A little shame's good, mm-hmm. right? There's a biological basis for shame, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes. you know, pathogen avoidance. Like, I, you know, built a robot for my one of my specials that looks exactly like me. And uh. she's a sex robot. She has an uncanny valley face, and it terrifies men. <laughs> men are like, they, they recoil. Whereas women are kind of like, that's crazy. <laughs> and I learned about pathogen avoidance, the idea that uh. if, you know, something looks human but doesn't move like a human, uh. it could be sick or dead, i.e. Uh-huh. don't 
uh-huh. fornicate with it, uh-huh. recoil and get away. And I'm just obsessed with those sort of primordial responses that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the biological basis for them. So mm-hmm. there is a biological basis for shame and guilt, right? They do some mm-hmm. good things. It's mm-hmm. just the idea is to not overdo it or feel them at inappropriate times or times that are going right. to drive maladaptive behaviors. Yeah, shame is so strong, right? It, it is so strongly a behavioral shaper, right? So so it has its purpose. You know, if you imagine uh, humans living in small groups and, you know, someone does, some, does something that damages the food supply or something that, that really puts the whole group in danger, mm-hmm. then a, a sense of shame is such a strong deterrent. Right. So, so there's there's a survival aspect of shame, but then it gets hijacked, mm-hmm. and and that may mean that it's hijacked by systems that want people to feel a certain way, but it can also be hijacked within us where we start feeling ashamed of things because we're we're conditioned mm-hmm. to to feel that way. Like something isn't perfect, so we feel ashamed, or someone else hurts us, so we feel ashamed. That that we can have a response that's designed to protect us and coming from a place evolutionarily to protect us, but gets hijacked by so many other things. Uh, and then that very, very strong power of shame is used against us, often by we ourselves. Mm. We talk about being shamed, but what, why do people want to shame other people? Mm-hmm. Is it to control? Is it to be superior? Is it to get a hit of, you know, I'm better than you? Um, or is it just a misguided, benevolent, emotion of like trying to make society good. I mean, there can be a, a lot of reasons, a wide variation in, in reasons behind why people want other people to feel shame. But I think the heart of the question that, that you're asking, I think the, the answer would be to relieve the, the person who's shaming someone else of some sense of vulnerability or insecurity within them. Mm. So So the idea that a person doesn't feel sure enough, strong enough, uh, it doesn't feel solidified enough in who they are. And, and that could be for good reason. Like maybe they should make better decisions, healthier decisions, or maybe there's work to do to come congruent with who they are and the decisions they've made. But, but the person isn't in that place, right? They're not in a healthy enough place to say, hey, whatever's going on in me is by and large between me and me, mm-hmm. right? And if there are things that are making me not happy, you know, I, I need to take responsibility for those things, mm-hmm. right? But but what can be easier through the through the lens of envy, right? Because envy is destructive, is to make someone else feel worse or to set oneself out as better than another person, which which is which could be done in a very personalized way. Mm-hmm. You know, the the thought that you know in 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 intimate or close quarter situations of a person just saying I'm I'm better than you, stronger than you, smarter than you, whatever yeah. it may be. But people also do that towards demographics. Right. And and you now this is a way in which shame can be imposed on others in the service of of, of bolstering up a self that that really could use uh, introspection and change perhaps as opposed to, to bolstering. And I guess what I was trying to also get to is is projection. You know, I think and I and I don't know if this is ever ways of just getting out of discomfort. But when it's you know when you point one finger at someone else, you point three right. at yourself. You know, and so right. when we sort of project onto other people. If we're shaming someone else, does that mean that we feel shame? 
Yeah, it's sure. It's just, it's another way of saying the same thing, mm-hmm. right? So the idea that like I'm bad, yeah. I'm not good enough, right? And for whatever reason that may be, that I don't want to feel that. So mm-hmm. I say, well, actually, it's not me. It's you who's bad, who is not good enough. And you know that may seem like oh, that's a strange thing, but we do this all the time. Like all, all human beings do this, yeah, to some degree or another. The problem is when we do way way too much of it right i mean how many times when when i did more like hospital work or emergency room based work where you might see someone who's very very angry who's you know gnashing their teeth and they have all the markers of anger who's who's saying Yo, you're so angry you know and, and you know the, the, the other person maybe me or the is, is sitting there and, and calmly right and it's a projection of a feeling state that's unacceptable and and that's what we see in a lot of societal shaming or or you know the the projection out of uh, how I don't feel good enough onto other people, so that I don't have to bear that feeling anymore. Is is it safe to say it's pretty linear? What I'm accusing someone of feeling is what I feel, or what I'm accusing someone of doing or judging someone for doing is either what I fear in myself I'm capable of or am doing and want to, you know, get myself out of it or exonerate myself from it by focusing on someone else doing it. Is that like a one-to-one? No, it's not a one-to-one, but it's sure worth asking the question, mm-hmm. right? Most of the things that we reflexively inside of us think about other people, right? And often there's not a whole lot of hesitation or modulation between what we think and what we say or what we write, right? Especially in the modern world, you can write something and press send and it's like the thought can be translated into some action. Most of what we're projecting outward is in reference to ourselves, meaning it's about ourselves. Yep. So to stop, and think like, is it that, mm-hmm. right? Is it that? And, and sometimes maybe it isn't like, no, that person is doing something that like legitimately they should feel ashamed about. And I'm going to tell them that like, right. sometimes it is. Just because I accuse someone right. of being a pedophile doesn't mean I'm a pedophile. Yeah, it's like, it's not going to be that extreme all the time, but. Right, right. But if one went around accusing people of being pedophiles kind of willy nilly or the way, you, you know, in a way, like let's imagine a situation you know like that. But it is a little fishy. But, right, then, then you would say what? <laughs> You know why, or maybe a person accuses other people of just all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so patterns matter too. Yep. Right. Patterns matter too, and and once we can discern the pattern, we can often tell what it means. What is it in the service of? Mm-hmm. You know, especially if it's an unhealthy pattern or a maladaptive pattern or one that's not consistent with truth. I mean, there is like real truth. There are people where one might have a suspicion they could be a pedophile. Then there are people where there, there's aren't reasons to point in that direction. Right. Mm-hmm. So so you know they're all just clues because a lot of understanding someone, whether one is doing so as a therapist or a psychiatrist or the person in the world, right, is is really it's observation, it's reflection. And and a lot of that is about our observation and reflection about ourselves. Interesting. Um yeah, because I think to me it's always like if I'm confused about how I feel, how do I think someone else feels? And sometimes that's a little cheat to be like, ah, I see what I'm doing here. I'm mm-hmm. just, this is how I'm feeling. And the, this person just became a Rorschach test and I projected this thing onto them, mm-hmm. you know? So sometimes that's a helpful tool for me. Um, you are an expert in um, the field of trauma. Can we also just talk about, you know, a way to be triumphant with the tools that maybe we have as a result of trauma that we can focus on just to change our focus into gratitude I will never mm-hmm. say be grateful that you were abused, be you know, right. intentionally abuse someone so they have trauma adversity so that they could sublimate it into work and whatever. You know, it's, you know, maybe this is delusional. Maybe this is just a tool that works for me and only me. But it has helped me a little bit to go, you know what? Like, I'm actually better equipped for this and this and this because that horrendous thing right. happened to me. 
I don't forgive the people that did it necessarily, or, you know, maybe I do. I want to talk about radical forgiveness later when it's appropriate. Um, you know, but I can accept that that happened. And I'm actually like have kind of more of an advantage. Like I look at a lot of my friends Mm -hmm. who have had these sort of, you know, really cookie cutter, um, they were read to, they were loved and they're a mess. I mean, they are useless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, whether it's, it's you know, being, you know, very high functioning, you know, not to bleed into hypervigilance or, you know, workaholism. Like if there's a way to calibrate it or really look at your motives, um, is it ever healthy to focus on the positive attributes and maybe superpowers that come with trauma, just whether it's a coping mechanism or as a way to change your focus to not self-loathe or stay stuck in the right. victim state? Right. Well, sure. I think it absolutely makes sense. So the one thing we're not going to do is go back and change the past, right? So we know that we can't do that. So what has happened has happened. That's true in all of our, all of our lives. And the negative things of trauma are, are in, in a way, they're inflicted upon us, right? Like we, we, we don't have a choice about them. It's the, the positive things, the good that can come of negative things that where we have to bring ourselves to bear, and and one of the, among the many, many, many reasons to, to prevent trauma is is that you know many people cannot; they're not resilient enough, or, or they don't have it within them. And and maybe some of that is natural inner resources, or that maybe social circumstances, or just a, a whole confluence of factors where where people don't make it right. They don't get to say, okay, what what can be good about this? What can be adaptive about this? What have I learned about myself? What have I learned about my strength or my resilience? Um, what wisdom have I gained? Mm. You know, that's what we we that's what we want to happen. And we can bring ourselves to bear and from terrible trauma can come strength and can come goodness. And and I think of the the example in my own life of my brother's death. So as I've talked about this in other places that my youngest brother, uh, he died by suicide. And, and you know, the, the trauma of that was, you know, was like a, a huge seismic wave through myself, my parents, you know, it was, it was people I loved and people who loved us. And, and you know, the, the awfulness of all of it is, is very easy to recount. It's very apparent and it's very real, mm-hmm. right? And as I start to talk about it, I can feel as if it's very immediate. You know, it's many, many, many years ago, but it feels very immediate. But I have to maintain the knowledge within me that it is not immediate. It is not happening now. The feelings make it very proximate, but it, it happened in the past. And if I can maintain the distance from it, then I can see the other side of that coin, which is not nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, a big reason I stopped doing what I was doing and, you know, went back to college for a year to take pre-med classes, to apply to medical school and do do things that, that really have been so good for my life, right? And I, and I hope for good for people around me. And, you know, by no, by no means does it make light of the trauma or the suffering mm-hmm. of the trauma to say that we can bring ourselves to bear to, to make good things come of it. And we also have to be aware that not everyone can do that. Maybe I was fortunate. There were enough supportive people around me. You know, I had insurance and I said, okay, let me go maybe get therapist, even though like no one I'd ever known had been to a therapist, but maybe I kind of need that. And so, so a lot of it was happenstance. So I, so I, I feel a sense of, of, um, learning something good about myself to be here. And also just an immense sense of gratitude because without goodness in the world around me, what I myself could bring to bear, I think wouldn't have been enough. Because I'm always trying to find the balance between, you know, meaning making and denial. 
you know, mm-hmm. or going anesthetizing myself with, well, if that didn't happen, then this would never have happened. And now I'm here. So I just, you know, this is the only, this is how I'm going to get through the day by uh-huh. telling myself that story. You know, it's almost like the opposite of self-limiting belief, you know? Mm-hmm. And so can those be helpful? Um, even if it sounds like denial. The difference between not acknowledging something, right? So, so denial is not good, right? I mean, there's, cause it means that there's something that's true that we're looking away from, right? So the idea is like denial doesn't help us. Mm-hmm. Rationalization doesn't help us. Avoidance doesn't help us. You know, in general, when we're using these defenses, they're not good for us. They're making life more complicated and more obscured than if we really looked at the, the truth. But to, to see the truth and to still feel hopeful, that is not denial, right? That's saying like, I'm still... Here is it. You and I were talking beforehand about the idea that sometimes we're in wars and the wars are over, right? And whether we've won or lost, so to speak, we can still be lost in the war, right? And and afterwards, no matter what has happened to us, you know, if we can pick ourselves up, we can move forward. And the world, while having so many difficulties within it, is not devoid of good people and and not devoid of ways that we can make change and make goodness in the world around us. And, and I think that that's healthy optimism. And that's, you know, in a way, maybe that's healthy humanism that a person can feel, including to feel about themselves. This is making me think of addictive thoughts. Um, you know, um, I've learned so much about you talking about addiction, um, substances, you know, gambling, sex, all that. The internal drug cabinet of thoughts, adrenaline, you know, perfectionism. You know, I talk um, publicly about being an adult child of alcoholics where, you know, someone asked me the other day, they were like, so are you addicted to like a substance? And I was like, it's kind of hard to explain, you mm-hmm. know, because we're not in recovery from alcohol or mm-hmm. weed or, you know, mm-hmm. sex or anything. It's the internal drug cabinet of adrenaline of, mm-hmm. you know, um, whether it was the epigenetics of in utero, my mom was really stressed out, pounding me as a fetus with adrenaline, like a crack baby's addicted mm-hmm. to crack. I was born addicted to adrenaline, whether I you know, got it early. I was always in a chaotic situation. So I found myself subconsciously gravitating towards chaotic situations mm-hmm. as an adult, you mm-hmm. know, sort of so people that are, you know, you're in a toxic relationship, you're with someone who's, you know, um, you know, uh, needs to be rescued. You know, we thrive on right. the three M's, mothering, micromanaging, martyring. Our addictions are also perfectionism, control. So I was just curious because um, I think a lot of people struggle with sort of intrusive, addictive thoughts. Right, right. Absolutely. Even though our brains are incredibly complicated and powerful, there are also ways in which they're simple. And, and our brains are creatures of habit. So if there are thoughts that are going over and over and over again in our mind, then the connection in those thought pathways, the connections become much stronger. Mm-hmm. So then we're more likely to have the thought again. Like that's how it works. The idea that if we picked a word and said it a thousand times, we'd be saying it tonight or tomorrow morning. And you'd say, well, why is that? Like we knew it was a silly experiment, but there it is. We'd still be saying it the next day, right? Then right. that's just simply because you said it. Right. So, so we, we become creatures of habit and we need to understand and redirect ourselves in a way that is reasonable. Right. When people have, say, thought, addictive thoughts, as you're saying, repetitive thoughts, and it could be 
I'm a terrible person or I'll never make it or mm -hmm. I should hurt myself. Right? Or, I, I don't deserve anything good. Right? When, when that's going over and over again inside of us, we need to reframe that, that inside there's a, there's, a self, there's a persecution of the self going on. We want to be able to understand that and we want to be able to so, so gain knowledge, gain insight, and then redirect energy away from those pathways. Mm -hmm. And then realize that in most people that takes time. Right? I mean, it takes time in everyone. It's just a matter of like how much time. There's a lot of other factors yeah. that can determine. And often we get very deterred, especially in modern America and, and in the world of modern medicine, right? Like we're, we're, it's all about rapid satisfaction and quick fixes. And, and, you know, we don't honor that. That maybe really can get better in a person, but maybe that takes six months of therapy. Mm. You know, we, we, we're so on the insurance package, seven or 10 sessions of one kind of therapy for everything. Yeah. And we, we end up, we end up diminishing ourselves and not honoring that, yeah, all of those things can get, can get better, but we do need some insight, right? And, and we do need some skills in, in order to be able to redirect our thoughts. And it's like, there's so much that can be done to gain insight and to, be gain, to gain skills. And then those thought patterns wither away, right? They wither away. It doesn't mean they might not be there. Like someone who might have, have thought hundreds of times a day, I should cut myself, right? And now they haven't thought that in a couple of years mm -hmm. and they're doing so much better, but then something bad happens. Like they drop something, they feel embarrassed and the thought comes back. And 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 feel like that's okay. It, it doesn't, all it is is a thought that, was very ingrained, right? And it's like the thought can come back and you can put the thought away for another bunch of years, maybe forever, right? But it takes the power out of the, the, the thoughts to, to be controlling of mood and, and sense of self and behavioral choices. Oh, shalom. Now it is time to upgrade your sleep. It's enough with this not sleeping well, rolling over, waking up, looking like an ashtray because you're dehydrated, the, your skin moisture has been leached off. I've had it. It's time to upgrade your sleep with Blissey's award-winning 100% Mulberry Sleep Pillowcases. The holidays are right around the corner. And if you're looking for the best gift you can possibly give, look no further than the Blissey Silk Pillowcase. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Silk is the most luxurious gift for any occasion. Plus it comes in gift-ready packaging. So that's handled. Give yourself the gift of Blissey today. And you're going to want one in every room of the house. I mean, I pack Blissey pillowcases at this point. I'm going to Austin tomorrow and they're in my luggage. Do you struggle with trying to find that cool side of the pillow all the time? Blissey silk pillowcases naturally have insulating properties. So if you sweat and overheat while you sleep, Blissey handles it. On top of that, it's also amazing because it reduces hair frizz, tangles, prevents breakage in your hair. It keeps the moisture in your hair where it belongs. Keep your skincare products in your skin where it belongs. The silk does not absorb the moisture off your face. You can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky skin, red skin in the morning, and you're going to wake up with healthier hair, healthier skin. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic. So you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. They're great for those with allergies. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are the highest quality silk and are machine washable, durable, and even have a zipper. They got a zipper to hold your pillow in place. I travel with their pillowcases. They keep my hair from looking like a rat's nest when I wake up. Total game changer. I'm going to be giving these for Christmas to all my friends because everyone always asks me, what do you do to your skin? It's not about what you put on your skin. There's no point in putting something good on your skin if your pillow just wipes it right off and tries to steal your youth and future from you. So you got to make sure you're using the Blissey pillowcase so your product doesn't get sucked out of your face. 
Lissy pillowcases, the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have tons of different prints, colors, make great gifts. They have over 1.5 million raving fans. You could be next. Try a risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash Whitney. Get an additional 30% off. That's blissy, B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash Whitney. Use code Whitney to get an additional 30% off. Give yourself the gift of a good night's sleep with Blissy. Witty quips. I'm known for my witty quips. So it would only make sense that I'm down with Quip toothbrushes. Quip toothbrushes and dental hygiene products they're a total game changer. I'm truly obsessed with these. I'm not even joking. I do have to read off the screen because there's certain things that I can't get wrong. And you know how dyslexic I am. But dude, there is nothing worse than what it was like with toothbrushes before Quip came along. Because I'm torn all the time. There's nothing worse when you get to your hotel and your toothbrush, you pull it out. You're like, all I want to do is brush my teeth. Like you get off the plane and you're just like, ah. Oh. And then there's just, you pull your toothbrush out. It's like, it's like wrapped tightly in hair. It looks like, like the lady for the Blair Witch Project, something you'd find in the woods in a witch's den. There's like covered in schmegma from your makeup bag. And there's just like, like, I, I can't, I can't with that. Quip makes this magical toothbrush. Look at this. Look how sen sensual that is. I won't say sexual. That might get me in trouble, but it is sensual. Quip makes this magical toothbrush with timed sonic vibrations with 30 second pulses, okay? Which guides a dentist recommended two minute clean. Cause sometimes I'm brushing my teeth and I'm not paying attention. I'm like, that definitely wasn't long enough. This just takes out the thinking for you, okay? Has a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. And guess what? How long does the charge last? Three months. Three months? Good health starts with good habits. Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials you need for your mouth and the design of Quip. Woo, look at that. It's the worst when you work so hard to have like a nicely designed and like decorated bathroom. You got your nice little pump. You put your soap in the next thing so you don't have to see all the stickers, right? You got your tissue box covering the fancy tissue box, covering the crappy one. And then your toothbrush is just like sticking out. Like a, you got some nasty ass toothbrush. It looks like neon green and purple. It's making your serene sanctuary of a bathroom feel like you're all of a sudden in an internet cafe in Tampa. Quip won't do you dirty like that. With stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just $25, you will not be paying through the teeth for better oral health. If you get quip.com slash Whitney right now, you're going to get 20% off this electric toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, and the water flosser, which we actually, hold on, I had to put it back in here because guess what? I was using it. Um, water flosser, go to getquip.com slash Whitney right now. 20% off any electric toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, or water flosser. That's 20% off any electric toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, or water flosser at getquip.com slash Whitney, spelled get, G-E-T, quip.com slash Whitney. Quip, the good habits company. You find it helpful to sort of name the voices in your head, you know, uh, assuming we're all thinking what we were programmed to think until we're actively deprogramming, right? To, you know, go, okay, this is the inner child. This is the shadow, you know, sort of identifying where your thoughts are coming from. Do you find um, that your clients have success with 
with those. I've had a lot of success with going, oh, that's just my inner child is scared. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you're making up a, you know, I've had the photo of myself at five on my phone for a while in ACA. We do inner child work where we write our letters and, you know, and we kind of, you know, anthropomorphize feelings of fear as a child, you know, and then mm-hmm. the way to help take care of yourself when you're struggling with self-care is to eat the way you would eat if you were feeding a five-year-old child, to sleep the way you would sleep, to, you mm-hmm. know, not force her to be in situations. Mm-hmm. She's just like kind of a little shortcut, right. you know, so that you're not martyring yourself or overcommitting right. and, um, you know, self-depriving. But I'm just curious if that's something that... Oh yeah, that can be very helpful and very powerful because it makes alien the alien voice, right? Mm-hmm. So so if, if the thought would be, okay, every time something uh, comes inside of you that is along the lines of, I'm not good enough, mm-hmm. right? Whatever that, I and mean, it might be those words, or it might be other words, but it's basically speaking to that. If a person can recognize like, look, I don't actually think that about myself, right? I don't actually think that, but it's in me all the time. It's, it's the voice of, period. It's the voice of a, a former romantic partner. Yeah. It's the voice of a mother, father, you know, sister, brother, whoever it may be. And to, to recognize like, that's not me. Right. So, so in a sense, it's okay mm-hmm. that it comes up in me. Like it's come up in me. It, it can't not be okay. Right. right. It, like it's, it's happened. And I have to validate that <laughs> yeah, it's that's not, happened. It's not good to say, I'm a piece of shit. Oh, you're such a piece of shit because you can't stop thinking right. you're a piece of shit. It just turns right. into But this. that happens all the, yeah. it happens all the time. Right. So validate. Okay. It, it, it came up in you. We knew that it's there for good reason because, because it, it's there as a consequence of trauma. Right. Mm. You can look at it and say, that's alien. To me, where so the person who maybe hasn't had a thought that they should cut or hurt themselves in the example that I gave for three years, sometimes when that happens, and I'll try and prepare a person, but they can be very, very frightened by it, right? But if they're prepared to know, like, oh, look, you're not welcome here, and then and then it's over, yeah, right, and then it's over. So by by validating, okay, I see that that's in me and it's alien to me, then we can see it for what it is, which is something we don't. You know, we don't need to pay heed to. It is alien to us, and I can push that aside and now have a different conception. So what do I actually think about myself, right? And it, it is in that, into the void of kicking out the reflexive, internalized, you're not good enough from someone else comes, now what do I actually think about? Do I think I'm not good enough for this thing? Because if I think I really am not, I should do something else. Mm-hmm. Or I should work harder or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or maybe I do think I'm good enough. What, what does it take to be good enough? How hard am I working? Whatever it may be, right? Now the person is empowered to understand and to strategize. So I love getting in the weeds and getting granular on this because I think a lot of us have jobs where, you know, perfectionism serves us to a certain extent and then becomes a liability or it serves us very well in our work, but we have to turn it off before we go home to our partner or to our, you know, kids or to whatever. And so, um, and I feel like I see this a lot in uh, culture now, this grind culture, this sort of everyone, you know, and to me, it just looks like chronic perfectionism and addiction mm-hmm. to perfectionism and ultimate self-loathing of, you know, seeking awards and trophies and money. And, you know, it all just feels like like a perfectionism addiction. And I'm curious how with your clients or in general, we can balance wanting to be the best at what we do. That's right. okay to want to be you're the best at what you do, you know, but how do we know when we're going too far and when it's... Um, starting to become a liability, I guess, when your life becomes unmanageable and when you're losing things. But I right. have struggled before because my perfectionism is so rewarded. We were talking about how like words are so important, right? So mm-hmm. if we're defining perfectionism as a search 
or is striving for the perfect, right? Then we would then conclude that perfectionism is always bad, mm. right? Because it, it's the enemy, not just of good enough, but it's the enemy of great, right? So, per, so perfect is the enemy of everything that. that's possible for, for humans. So there's a difference between perfectionism and having very high standards, right? So, so think about it. If I have to think that I'm the best at what I do, mm. I mean, well, how do I know that? And, and how unreasonable would that be, right? right? To think that yeah. I could figure that out and I could know that and that that would be important to me is like, there's a problem there, right? As opposed to, I, I want to be very, very good, as good as I can be at what I do. And maybe there are a group of people who work very, very hard and, you know, think and learn who are like really good at what I do. Like, mm. I want to be one of them. Right now, I'm not lowering my aspirations. I'm sending them to a place that I can actually ascertain, achieve, feel good about. But if I think, oh, I need to be the best, that's driven by some problem, right? So when I can't actually discern that. Mm. So is it narcissistic that I think I need to be the best in case what am I defending against, right? Or is it driven by trauma that if I'm not the best, no one will love me and approve of me? So, so if we define it that way, that perfectionism is a search for perfect, then perfectionism is always bad. And always says, wait, 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 go look inside because why isn't this perfectionism as good as I can be or as good as it can be right. at the very highest standard? That's what you said. Can we shift it to that? Because now we've shifted it to something that's healthy. And it's, uh, I love um, hearing you talk about this because, um, you know, I think about times when I've gone out and done something great and then I go off stage and I go, yeah, but it wasn't perfect. And I'm like, what am I doing? Am I just trying to hurt myself? Do I do I not feel like I deserve to celebrate? You know, do I not want to feel that feeling because I'm worried I'm going to lose my motivation? Or is this just a bad habit? Because, you know, to me, I mean, celebrating a triumph is a form of gratitude, you know? Right. And, um, you know, I, I'm like, is this just me trying to go back to the equilibrium? Or I don't want to get used to that because it might be taken away or, you know, something. Right. But I think, you know, you've worked with comics before, you know. Mm -hmm. There can be 5,000 people laughing and we're only focusing on the one in the front row that right. is maybe, you know, drunk and passing out, but we have to go, you know, it's right. like, daddy, daddy, are you, right. <laughs> you know, right. it's like, we just right. project are right on. Approving? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Usually what's happening there is that along with the trauma and some sense of victimness mm -hmm. by trauma and victimness is never good because it's identifying oneself as marked for something negative, you know, essentially as not good enough mm. and the victimness doesn't come without a persecutor right so and so the the thought would be that in the the situation you described that the the persecutor is going to continue persecuting you right until you throw away both the victim and the persecutor so you know there's signs like every now and then I'll see a sign in a you know in a business or an office that says uh um the beatings won't stop until morale improves Right. And and I think it's an interesting sign because I think it's reflective of a lot of what goes on inside of us. It's no accident that mm -hmm. maybe somebody makes a sign like that and it sells a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. So th this would be the equivalent of that is saying, look, the beatings won't stop until you feel good enough about yourself. Right. So if you're coming off, you're saying you're coming off mm -hmm. stage. So clearly you've achieved something. Right. So something good is, is happening in your life. Like things are going well. Right. But the, the persecutor would would say, like, you don't get to enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's point out what wasn't 
what wasn't perfect, so to speak, so that you feel bad enough about yourself and, and you don't give in or get complacent or like all things you would never actually do, mm-hmm. right? But, but, but it, it comes through that lens because the thought inside of you through the persecutor is that's what's going to keep you working as hard as you can, right? You don't get to ever feel good enough, right? And you keep persecuting yourself until you get to that point. But of course, we can't get to that point, which is why like it never gets solved that way, mm. right? It has to get solved by, identif- by identifying, I don't, I don't want that. Like, how can you feel good enough so there's not a victim or a persecutor and you can come off stage and say, yeah, I, I think I did a great job. Or even if you don't feel, let's say you don't feel you did your best. Like, I'm good at what I do really good at what I do. Was this my best? Okay, maybe it wasn't. I can, you know, I can even live with that without having to to beat myself up. It's like, that's the place of health that we would be ideally aspiring to get to. I heard in a meeting once, um, uh, someone was talking about releasing their, you know, maladaptive behaviors. We call them character defects. You can call them superpowers, whatever you want. And sort of turn them into like a person trying to help them and said, like, I don't need your help anymore. Thank you. Like you did your job protecting me when I was five Mm -hmm. or 10 or whatever, but I no longer need your help. You can sit on the bench. And that makes me think, you know, when I come off stage now, sometimes it'll be like, oh, that wasn't that one person or you shouldn't have said it that way. And it's like, okay, that actually was really helpful, you know, 30 years ago when I was trying to get my dad's attention or when I was trying to get the alcoholic to laugh or stop yelling, but like, I don't need you anymore. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just was to have sort of a, a a loving relationship with that thought instead of, you know, a combative one of like, get out of my head. It was more like, thank you so much for trying to help. Yeah. But I don't need your help anymore because the war is yeah. over, as you yes. said. Like that that's a tool that really worked for me as corny yes. as it probably sounds. No, it it's is not corny at all because you're taking the emotional energy out of it, right? Because that voice that says that wasn't good enough, that's a very powerful, searing, persecutory voice. And you being able to make that lighthearted, it takes the energy out of it. If we thought think about the emotion flag that's attached to it, it takes they'll say the the depth of red out of that flag, maybe into the yellow, or maybe it starts even taking it towards green. Where you're like, okay, yeah, mm. sh- sh- thank you. It's okay, just- help for taking, but I don't need you anymore, right? Or sometimes the answer to this, you know, can can uh, surprisingly so lie in Bugs Bunny, right? You remember like the old comics where sometimes the the angel and the devil would appear on the shoulder, yes. right, of the of the character, and you know you can sort of look at the the devil, so to speak, that's that's talking to you. Often, I think whoever the character was would brush the angel off the shoulder, but here you can brush the devil, and you can be in yeah. a very lighthearted way of like, I think you're saying something to me because sometimes it does just come from a miserable place, mm-hmm. you know, and it is just you know being sadistic to the self without any hatred of the self it's mm-hmm. it, it's just with us because we're carrying it forward from something in the past and and then i imagine sometimes the devil on the shoulder and that we can just go yeah you know and just toss toss it up and take the take the power out of it that's very very powerful when, when a person is able to do that take the power out of it and be lighthearted and then and redirect what's real and true that's when we're getting to the other side of it. And it's such a specific example, but I think it also is, you know, so relatable in that, you know, with social media now, anybody, whether you have, you know, 10 million followers or, you know, a thousand followers, you're going to see a bunch of comments that say, that looks awesome. You're great. And then one that's like, you suck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all tend to focus on the you suck and weight that more strongly. And is that because it corroborates 
what we already believe about ourselves or we have some biological basis to focus on the negative or it made some adrenaline. So it's like imprints more. Yeah. Well, the problem is we have a biological predisposition that then gets hijacked. So the predisposition to remember the bad better than the good mm. right, is, is probably part of the reason we're sitting here talking today. And the example I often give is, you know, imagine living in small groups and, and going out and looking for a new food source. And feel like, so you find something and it's nourishing and it's good. It's good to remember that, right? Because you'll look for it again. But if it makes you very, very sick, right, then you better remember that, right? Because now it's about survival, right? So, so there's a salience bias inside of us that the negative is more salient. So it says we're already kind of half off to the races, mm. right? And then if trauma, especially childhood formative life trauma, gives the message that you know the negative is so, so, so much so much more important. You know, the child who's trying to be perfect to not get hurt, right? So mm -hmm. already they're trying to be perfect to not get hurt and succeeds in avoiding getting hurt and succeeds and succeeds, but but then does get hurt, whether that's two hours later or it's 10 days later, whatever it may be, that is so salient that it, it sends the message that you're, you're helpless to prevent this or that you deserve this. And, you know, that we take those things inside of us and then in an effort to keep ourselves safe, mm. right, we end up using it against us. I think a lot of what we've learned from, from recent research and experience, some of it in the realm of psychedelic use and some of the alternative modalities that we're learning so much more about, fits with the thesis that we don't mean ourselves harm, right? That, that if there's a part of us that's berating us and bullying us, we've, we've internalized these, these thoughts, ideas, external voices, mm -hmm. right? That we've internalized that become very, very powerful in the service of survival. So when you get off stage and it's gone very, very, very well, but you think of the thing that wasn't perfect, you know, the persecutor isn't you hating you. Right. It's you hating on you. Right, 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 right. Right. right? But it's for a, it's for a purpose yeah. that and it's, I don't need. I don't need that the tough love is not helping mm -mm. here. But it but we don't mean ourselves harm. I like and, to say like your heart is in the right place. <laughs> right. But this is not helpful. Right. And and that's a good way of understanding these voices within us, that they're not intrinsic to us. And, and that doesn't mean that, oh, if we don't have them, we'll let ourselves off the hook. Like mm -hmm. if you come off stage and you feel like I could have done better, like I come out of things and I and I try and think. If it didn't go as well as I wanted it to, I know the reflex in me and the, you're an idiot or what do you think you're doing? I know that's in me. Okay, okay, I get it. I get it. So then I try mm -hmm. and stop and think, like, if I have that feeling, is it anchored to something real? Maybe it is anchored to something real and I should have had a little different approach. Like, learn from it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right? But because I've, I've tried to jettison the, I don't have to be perfect, which is very strongly in me and is completely out of me, mm. then I can learn from it. Yep. Right? it. It actually doesn't help me feel good enough if the beatings continue. And it really, I think, atrophies bravery. You know, this is going to sound like a platitude, but, you know, in ACA, we say perfectionism leads to procrastination, which leads to paralysis, mm -hmm. you know? So it's yes. kind of like nothing's going to get done if right. I'm just trying so hard to be perfect that I, right. you know, I'm basically just, you know, I'm frozen, you know? Right. So I think, um, I think right. it's helpful for people to, to hear because it's, it's kind of this sort of um, invisible epidemic thing of like people trying to be perfect. And right. but also, you know, um, in uh, my family history, there's a lot of, uh, you, you know, disordered eating and such, which right. I believe is linked, mm -hmm. you know, somewhat to that kind of perfectionism. Yes, so. Right. Yes. So um, and then, you know, so I'm curious if we can segue into that. We, brought, we were talking about social media and, you know, I was kind of just like looking up online, just, you know, 
researching what I wanted to ask you. And it seems like, and we don't know if it's, you know, you'll tell me, but um, this prevalence of like body dysmorphia, uh-huh. you know, um, eating stuff, you know, blaming social media. Mm-hmm. We've always had eating disorders. We've always mm-hmm. had body, you know, you know, I grew up with Kate Moss on the cover of magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't mm-hmm. even blame her. You know, I think a lot of it came mm-hmm. from me needing to control as a child and, you know, um, be perfect or, you know, whatever. Just curious if uh, we can yeah. talk a little bit about, yeah, about sure. that. Sure. And I might start off by saying it, an antidote to perfectionism can can be this idea that I think we can all embrace, which is don't play games that you're guaranteed to lose. Ooh. Right? I might be interested in playing games and maybe it's maybe it could be fun or maybe I can get something out of the other side of it. Like, okay, you want to tell me about a game? What is what is that? What are mm. we talking about? But if you say, oh, oh, there's something else to tell you about it, which is no matter what you lose. Well, I'm not interested anymore. Right? Yeah. I've got other things I could be doing with time and energy. And if we see this inside of ourselves, that no one wins the perfection game. Like in the, no. the human being winning percentage is zero. So, so it's let's just like reject emotional that. cutting. It's just I, I want to go hurt myself. Yeah, because then you have to shoulder the feeling of loss. Like if you if you play a game where you automatically lose, well, you have played the game, so it's not going to feel good when you lose. Mm-hmm. Right, which is why people often procrastinate. Mm-hmm. So keep going and keep thinking, and then I'll get this perfect. And then what results from that is paralysis. So that is true. Perfectionism, one way or another, gets us because the procrastination and paralysis don't feel good. It's just a matter of how are you going to get to to the loss, mm-hmm. and how painful is it going to be on the, along the road to the loss, and how painful is it going to be when you're at the loss. So don't do that. It's all just control at the end of the day. Yeah, it's either internalized or externalized control, which can lead us kind of back to eating. You're being a bully. Like you're kind of just being an annoying bully. (laughs) Right, because if you internalize the perfectionism, then you want to control you. And part of how you do that is by bullying you with saying things like you're not good enough, right? But if you're projecting that outward, then the, the, the control is of others. And that can be in ways that are seemingly benign. I'm going to take such good care of you, right? That you're going to feel great. And that means you'll never leave me. And and then I'll have control over you. So it's not, it's not good. Mm -mm. It's not, it's not healthy, but people do that. And and often without knowing it, you know, they can think they're doing something Mm well-meaning, but they're over-controlling someone. I just want dinner to be perfect. And it almost becomes in many ways a self-fulfilling well, it's always a self-fulfilling prophecy because the answer is always that it's a it's a loss. And when it's externalized to the control of others, that never goes well. We, we see that commonly in parent-child relationships, commonly, of course, in romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. You can see them in other relationships too, but control can be internalized, externalized, or both. And, and some of those were eating disorders, which are complicated psychologically, and there are many biological, psychological, and psychosocial factors, but there's the the creation of unhealthy control mechanisms both inside and out. So, so the internal perfectionism can be gratified in the short term, because it's never gratified for more than just the, the, the short term, mm-hmm. by restricting, by controlling what goes into the person, by, by setting a standard, or, or that standard could be in taking only so many calories or not in taking calories or or being at a certain weight or, or dropping to a certain weight where there's a control inside that involves management of the self hmm. and and withholding from 
the self. And it also imposes that control externally and says like, you can't make me eat, mm. right? Like you can't control me externally. I, I'm imposing control onto the outside world. And because there's the gratification of the internal need to control and the external need to control, that can become very powerful. And then there's a lot of reinforcement, including probably neurochemical reinforcement. There's some aspects of the starvation state hmm. then can become reinforcing and it makes it very hard. Not to mention everyone's like, you look amazing. <laughs> well, if there's social gratification yeah. externally, there's just adding fuel to the fire, which is why you know an ounce of prevention is always worth a pound of cure. But the more difficult it can be to get out of something, mm -hmm. the more important that becomes. And because eating disorders can be very refractory, you know, they can be reinforced and difficult to treat. Not always, and it, people overcome them. But it's very important to see those signs of unhealthy control as early as we can see them. And is why I wanted to bring it up because you know, from what I understand. You know, oftentimes, you know, if you have someone in your life that, you know, is struggling with disordered eating and you trying to help just, you know, it was, it's about control. So they'll just recoil more into their disease, you know? So right. that's why I feel, you know, like I want to, you know, talk about it. So if someone hears something, you know, um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking to watch someone right. you love go through it, but I've learned right. it's, you can be pretty helpless because if I try to help you or try to get you with a right. therapist, it's just going to make things worse. So what is your approach normally just more of like a hands-off, you know, like how do you approach yeah. that? You ally with the person's internal healthy control mechanisms. So for example, if that person values education, school, for example, then that person wants to be in school and maybe they can't be in school now. So that's what they want for themselves. It's not my agenda, so to speak. So I'm not coming in saying you should weigh right. more. Your labs should look different. You should be in school. I'm not coming in to say that. I'm coming in to say, what is it that you, you know, who are you? Know, to get to know someone, right? Yeah. Like, who are you and what's going on inside of you? And, and, you know, for the vast majority of people, even people who are, are you know, well into um, the severity of an eating disorder, there are, there are things that are very important to them in the outside world. And that may be education. It may be a family. It may be, you know, being able to walk the dog or whatever it may be. It's, there's, some, there's something good inside mm -hmm. to, that, that they can anchor to and that you can then help them. It's okay, I'm going to help you so you can do that. So y'all know I'm about to have a little baby and everybody's in a panic about my sleep. Everyone's like, oh, how are you going to sleep? What are you going to sleep? Are you never going to sleep again? I'm not worried about sleep, you guys. I'm not worried because in the nick of time, there's a product by Dreamland Baby that has been invented. It's called the Dream Weighted Sleep Sack. Right now, you can save 20% off statewide with our code good for you. BOGO, B-O-G-O, -O, 23. Not sure why that's the code, but you're going to get a discount. Now, listen, at my baby shower, my friends ignored my registry because it was mostly full of baby horse costumes. And I guess you don't need those for babies to survive, whatever. Most of them just got me this. Most of them got me this. It's called the Dreamland Baby Weighted Sleep Sack. Look at this thing. Look at that zipper. Boom, boom, up, down. Doesn't cut you. The Dreamland Baby Sleep Sack helps your baby fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. This gently weighted sleep sack relaxes and calms your baby and helps them sleep better for longer stretches of time. The gentle weight helps with sleep because it mimics the feeling of a parent's touch or hug. And if they sleep, the new parent gets to sleep, which means you are not going to lose your mind 
and you won't have to get a divorce. Everybody wins. Dreamland baby sleep sack. And if I can't convince you, Lori from Shark Tank is who bet on this item. And if you don't listen to Lori from Shark Tank, I can't help you. Dreamland Baby is having their biggest sale of the year. So you're going to use my code, good for you, BOGO, B-O-G-O 23 at checkout for the buy one, get one free weighted products deal. This is a great way to stock up on Dreamland Baby products. And you can give one as a holiday gift. Give your friends the gift of your baby sleeping so she can sleep. Or just buy two for yourself and sew them together and then you sleep in them. Lori from Shark Tank, call me. All right, y'all. I don't have to tell you this. Being in the grocery store during the holidays is a, it's like being stuck in a nightmare. It's like the airport and the DMV remixed into one giant smash and grab. And don't, don't get me started on the wine aisle, okay? The wine aisle is always just terrifying. It's like, People going through a divorce, just people lost, people confused, people angry, people shaking, <laughs> going through DTs. I don't know. It's I get very overwhelmed in the wine aisle because I feel like if I'm in there too long, people think I don't know what I'm doing because I don't. And I get embarrassed. I was I always just do the same thing every time. I grab a wine bottle if it's got a sticker of a horse or a butterfly, and then that's it. But I, that's not the best way to buy wine. And I've learned that the hard way many times, just because the sticker has an animal you may like on it or like a sunset, it does not mean it's going to pair well with Dover soul. Okay. That's not science. So thank you first leaf for existing because they take the stress out of finding new wine. First leaf is the wine club that sends me a personalized shipment of bottles that are based on my unique palette which is very sophisticated, by the way. And they deliver it right to my door. All I have to do is go to First Leaf's website, answer a few questions about my likes and my dislikes, and their expert team will select a customized assortment of world-class wines based on my preferences. And after I've tried each wine, I can rate them. So First Leaf can send me more wines based on my feedback. It's like you're in a wine algorithm and you're getting stuff that you actually like. This is my dream. It's also crazy how many new types of wines I've been trying and loving thanks to First Leaf. So I went on, they sent me an Australian red wine blend, Pat. It was, I, cause I think Merlot is a little too heavy for me. I wanted a lighter one. Uh, I never thought to try Australian wine down under. Didn't occur to me that that was their thing. I didn't know there were grapes in Australia. I didn't, I just, I didn't know. It was delicious. Not too sweet, not too bitter. Didn't turn my teeth purple. Didn't make me look like a pirate. Add to cart. Yes, please. And my aunt came and she likes white wine. I know nothing about white wine. I, I know rosé all day. That's kind of where I shine. But I told them what she likes. And they, um, we were having like pasta with fish. Normally you want a white to go with that. I think they sent, I wrote it down, a Chardonnay from Chile. It was so good. My aunt saved the bottle and took a picture of the bottle. And then I saved the bottle and I have to get more for next time she comes. She was in the best mood. You know, wine is good when your aunt doesn't even want to argue about politics with you. <laughs> it's like, we need to keep this wine coming, please. I love First Leaf because they also make it super easy to get personalized wine boxes delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I get to choose the day that the shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery. I don't have to worry about the coyotes getting into my wine stash. No, thanks. Plus first leaf wine is priced 30% lower than what you'd pay at a wine store because wine stores are a racket. 
I think we can all agree. Every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. Find the wine you'll love this holiday season with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash Whitney to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's a steal. That's try, T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash Whitney. Tryfirstleaf.com slash Whitney. I see a lot of, you know, young people right now wanting so badly mm -hmm. to build their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they're like, well, you know, love yourself. How do you mm -hmm. do that? How do you do? You don't do it from reading a meme on Instagram. You don't do it from an inspirational quote. You know, in order to right. build self-esteem, you have to engage in esteemable actions. Yes. There's something in our brains, right, that right. builds self-esteem from being useful and selfless. Yes. I would say there's nothing better. Let's say just across all things like one can do. There's nothing better one can do than doing something good for someone else. And that's not a platitude and it's not coming from some esoteric place. If I can give some goodness in me to you, mm -hmm. then there is goodness in me to give. I am not worthless. I am not nothing. I am not doomed. And that goodness can be anything, right? It can just be if we walk past one another on the street and meet eyes, do I do I look down or do I have the frown of self-protection, mm -hmm. right? Or or do you have a little bit of a smile, right? And you see someone who feels a little bit beleaguered and, you know, do you just give them a kind look or someone drops something, help them pick it up. Mm -hmm. The things that are really so small mm -hmm. that we can do that are so big inside and i'll say people always always ask what can be done that doesn't cost anything right because there are people who don't have access to resources right? you don't have the ability to go to go find resources that that cost money or are difficult to access and i'll say that the, the best thing we can do is for free and it that. is to give something good outside of us because it tells you right whatever voice is telling me that there's nothing in here is wrong and from that one smile to the person who's kind of frowny mm -hmm. right can come absolutely anything if i could say you know when working with people I, I often started having a thought this was a long long time ago of if i could wave a magic wand and do anything for this person what would it be and i started anchoring Ooh. to that because sometimes it would tell me something like she would get out of that house i would think or he would get out of that situation that he's in with those friends or she would leave that job or, you know, I was just thinking, but a lot of times what I would think, I started realizing I'm thinking the same things about a lot of people. Hmm. This is what brought me to the thoughts of trauma at the root of so many things in, in other ways. But I started realizing oftentimes what I was thinking of, this person would show up at say, a refugee camp somewhere with like just the clothes they're wearing and themselves. And I think that would be the thing I would do for them because mm. they're a good person and they would see the need, right? The need here, there are people here who, who need so much that the person would then would go into a mode of helping. I, I know that that person would, I know them and I know they would. Mm. Right? And they would do that and they would do that and they would keep doing that because the need is vast. And let's say you fast forward a couple of days later, as I know that person would be really tired and would have really extended themselves and worn themselves out but they would know they would have done nothing but things for other people over the last couple of days. What they would have immediately done upon realizing the situation they were in and the need of the people around them. And then let's, let's revisit now. Are you good enough? Are you worth anything? Do you have capability and you have goodness in you? It would be different. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's an interesting thing to say that to think sometimes the magic wand example of what would we do for others? What would we do for our, 
for ourselves. And there's nothing for someone who's feeling down, yeah. like, like knowing there's the goodness inside of us to, to give to someone else. That's fascinating. Um, and, uh, and so I want to pivot a little bit into, um, relationships, romantic relationships. Sure. And I've been pretty obsessed recently with chemistry versus compatibility. I think really concordant with the, the, that conversation we had about how like, the words matter. Mm. I mean, think about how we, we then kind of reduce it to chemistry or compatibility, which if I stop and think, I really don't even don't understand. Like, so is the chemistry, like it could be pheromones, for yeah. example. Like, well, we don't understand that, but, or is it chemistry, meaning something has happened inside of me? That's why I have the butterflies in my right. stomach. And what does it mean that we call them butterflies? Are there bugs in my stomach? I, I love this. You're and, just as yeah. much of a stickler so, about so, words as me. So, cause so it, what, what does that mean? And what does compatibility mean? Does that mean that we're alike? Does that mean we're not alike? And we just right? yin and yang. It's absolutely. Right. So, so I think it's very hard to solve a problem. I, I, I say this over and over that my math minor in college did the best for me of all my education. Cause if you can't solve something or really fully understand it, go back to the givens, mm. you know, and I learned that the hard way. Maybe every math person does where, where you realize I can't solve this complicated problem and I can't solve it and I can't solve it and I can't solve it. And then you realize Am I plugging in the right numbers from the outset, right? And if you go look, like that X is five, is X is three, and yeah. ah, right? So you go back and look at the givens. And when I do that here, I think chemistry and compatibility, we're already, they're not the, the, the right givens to solve the problem. What if we said something different? We should think about things we understand and things we don't understand. That sounds pretty good, right? So then if you meet someone and like, whoa, I, I feel something like, okay, I don't understand why I feel this. So maybe that's pheromone saying, oh, this is perfect, right? Or maybe that's trauma triggering, as you were saying. But you, you can kind of understand that at least to some degree better. Mm -hmm. right? If you stop, have I had this reaction to people like this before and it didn't go well? When I have this reaction, have I had it before? And like, that was really a potential good romantic partner. So then you're, you're recognizing that you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And that could come from things that people usually think of as compatibility. Like that person's pretty different from me. I don't know what that means. You know, so we don't even understand that either, mm -hmm. right? And some, so some of the things we understand have their limits. So if we understand something that says, this person is behaving in ways that have led to bad relationships in the past, Right now, that's something I can understand. So someone who is very kind and solicitous, but if you run even a little bit countercurrent to what their uh, emotional state is, what their wishes and their needs are, then becomes very negative. Right. right? And, and say, well, I recognize this. I understand this in mm. the sense that this has happened before and this hasn't gone well. Right. Honor that. That's telling you right now, don't pass go. Right, the, the 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 how people find a good relationship is they find not good relationships and reject them. I love that. Right, right. I so, love that. So then you so then you you think about what you can and can't understand. So if I understand something that's a pattern that tells me things don't go well, well now now you have that don't pass go. Yeah. Right. If there are things I don't understand, even if there are things that might push me one way or another. Where I was like, well, I didn't have the best feeling from that person. But does that happen a lot when, when then I kind of come around to feel differently sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, because maybe I react 
strongly to something, but it is something that's kind of good or healthy. So you know, think about what do you that's understand? What do you not understand? Can you understand a little better what you don't understand? When you do understand something, is it something actionable? It, it's just in a way a common sense process mm. of taking stock of self and then listening to what those signals are. Because a lot of times when a person does that, it goes to where most relationship prospects go, which is no. Right? It's the law of large numbers, right? Which means the answer to most potential relationship candidates is no. Mm -hmm. So that's okay. Right. We don't want to say that when a person when it's not no. We want to be careful about those things, right? right? But if we honor what's inside of us, we come to a no often or maybe let me learn more. Mm. Right. Let me learn more. Okay. It's only this second date or third date or the third minute or something. Yeah, right, right, like, right, it's, right, okay, right. it's okay. I can go slow if I don't know. Because what happens across time? The unknowns become more known or it be, it just becomes clearer over time. But mm. like now we have to figure out if this is my life partner. It's like, whoa, whoa, you had coffee and then went to lunch. I mean, it's like, it's okay. That may be enough to say no. Mm. And if it is, honor that. Don't deny, rationalize, avoid. If the answer is no and you know the answer is no because this person maps to something that you know the answer ends up being no, then don't push that down because you want somebody to go to a wedding within two weeks or because you really think they're physically attractive. Whatever it is, honor the truth that's within that's inside of you. And if you don't know, it's okay. Get more data. See, I don't have intimacy issues. <laughs> the answer's no for most of you. Okay? It's, I love this so much because I feel like you know, whether I've, you know, sort of it's been contagious of, you know, I've heard, well, you have commitment, you're commitment phobic and you're, you have intimacy issues. It's like, no, I just don't want to be with you for, I, I, I you're lovely, but I'm not going to talk myself into something that's not fair to you. And that's not fair to me, right. you know? And I right. think it's, it's taken me a really long time uh, to go like, yeah, the answer to most of you is no, because I will go like, well, I could change that or well, that'll change or well, maybe they'll just, and I'm like, that's the magical thinking. Like that's right. the craziness to say, oh no, this thing that doesn't work is going to change. Or you know what? Right. I'll just change this thing about myself that I kind of like, but makes us less, right. whatever the word would be that is, you know, um, superior to compatible. I'll just change that about right. myself or I'll stop needing that or I'll stop right. wanting and that. And that should be the red flag of stop sign. Now I have to look at myself. If I think I'm going to change you or I'm going to change something that I like about me, then I need to stop and look inside of myself. There's a lot of these, and I don't even know if these get to you. You're at such a high level of what you do. Um, you know, this is such basic wording and these sort of basic phrases that are thrown around. You know, people say like, if you find 80% of what you want, like that's good, you know? And you're like- Yeah, that isn't, that's not- That sounds nuts to me. We're, we're, deep, into, we're deep into rationalization land. And, you know, what you're describing though is it's a very, very serious thing this inability like it's hard to say no mm. and some of that it's all issues of self but some of it is can be issues of self related to the other that someone wants something it's hard to break up with someone it's hard to disappoint someone and that also mm. doesn't make sense if we if we all kind of understood that we we need to get to know one another a little bit and no harm no foul if you're not for me or i'm not for you now, I remember, I haven't thought of this for a while. It was a long, 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 long time ago of a, a, a woman who broke up with me. And I don't know if we'd gone out four or five times. And, and like, I'm so grateful to her. I, I think I have said this a couple of times huh. in different venues because it comes up. Because she just told me, she was like, look, in many ways, I think you're, you're great and you seem nice and you seem smart. And like, there's some 
you know, chemistry between us, but you know, I, I tend to like people who are, and she gave a description of like, not me. You know, it was, uh, uh, it was like six inches shorter, a little more built and, you know, and less successful. was <laughs> a long look. I'm just, you know, just people dating and, and, and also who had kind of a different style and like to, like, you know, be out and about I mean, a little more than, than I wanted to in certain ways. And it sounds like Asperger's. It, it was, it was, I think it was just, she was just super thoughtful. And I think she didn't want to see me again. And she wanted to just like ghost me to use the term. And I think she wanted to make something up and she's, I think she felt comfortable enough that like, just tell him. Yeah. Right. And I was like, Oh, thank you. It was, it was great. Cause like, I can't like, it's okay. Right. Like it wasn't an indictment of me. Like there was nothing really bad about it. You know, I liked her enough to go out on again with her, but it sounds like crushing me. Right. Like it's okay. I'll, I'll, it's a law of large numbers. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll go on a date with someone else. So yeah. it's just because I like her, doesn't mean that there's something terrible about her or me that she doesn't want to go out on another day. Think of how simple. I mean, good mental health is always consistent with simplicity. And I think Love of how it. simple it was. She's like, let me just tell this person. And she did tell me. I was like, oh, thank you. And the rest of the evening went well. And by the way, there's actually, there's a um, there's a, an asterisk to that story too, which was a bunch of months later. She had a friend coming into town who she did think I would like her and she would like me. And we did go out. It didn't last, but but we did like each other. And and it was cool. Like that only happened because we were able to be honest with one another. So then it wasn't weird for her to call me later saying, hey, I think, you know, she had to tell that other person. I, I, I dumped this guy, but I think he'd be good. I think you could like him and he could like you. Like there's a lot there to navigate. And then some simple goodness happened and we did like each other. That's fascinating. But maybe this is because I have gone through you know, some grief. And, and when you, as you know, grief is very clarifying and it's yes. very like, oh, we have a very limited amount of time, yes. you know, on this planet. And I'm just, I don't feel comfortable spending any of it, wasting anybody else's time, minimizing, rationalizing, or talking myself into anything. And sometimes I worry it's emotional perfectionism going, well, this person's not perfect or this relationship isn't perfect. So, so I, I vacillate because I'm like, well, I can't be in that space either. But if I find, I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about red flags and we go, well, this person does this or he doesn't do this or she does do this. And she does. forget about what they're doing. What's happening with you in reaction right. to them? Right. Are you right. walking on eggshells? Are you right. beating yourself up for saying the wrong thing? Are you trying right. to perform? You, you know, do you feel fear or pit in your stomach when you don't hear from them? Like the red right. flags can be how we feel or react to the person. It doesn't have to be personal to any flaws they have. Right. Or, or that they have or that we have. And then you, and then the person can honor themselves. So often relationship experiences just erode or dating experience, even things less than relationships, whatever they may be, experiences people have through a romantic lens with other people just continue to erode at the self and to undermine. Mm. And a lot of this is what happens when people break up. They often need to see that somebody's all bad. Mm. You know, I, I, I'm worthless so... That person broke up with me. Mm -hmm. Or now the person I'm breaking up with or who's breaking up with me has to be all bad. But what does that say about one's ability to choose? Mm. Right? If every relationship, if I'm dating in every relationship I leave, I think, oh, that person's terrible. But what is it, what am I saying to myself yeah. and my ability to make judgments? Whereas I, I refer again to the way that, you know, the four or five date um episode broke up all those years ago, is she didn't have to make she didn't have to feel like I was awful in order to say, I don't want to see you again. And I didn't have to feel that she was awful hearing that message. And we're like, oh, okay. Yeah. We, you know, we had a nice we're rest of whatever awesome, meal we were having. Match. And then we, we do carry forward something because 
it actually doesn't make sense for there to be anything else. Yeah. Right? If it's if there's something else, we're not in that realm of the simplicity and clarity of seeing what we're doing, which it's hard to be in relationships. It's not weird if one of us decides it doesn't make sense after three or four days. Like that's not weird. So can Mm-mm. we just be honest with one another and like move on with life? Yeah, yes. People now will just keep dragging things out and texting for months and like no one wants to break up with anyone or be clear or simple. Yeah. Being humane by just being simple and clear and knowing yeah. what you're feeling when you're feeling it. Right. Right. There's so much to be said for simplicity and clarity. And it can lead us so much better places, you know, as opposed to feeling worse about ourselves or feeling bad about the other. So we feel bad about ourselves for choosing the other, but we still want that person, even mm-hmm. though we, they're all bad and we're Ooh. saying they're all bad, but I want them anyway. And it's just so confusing and it doesn't have, it doesn't, doesn't have, have to be. be. And can I say, you said um, something about, you know, work or being in a relationship. I hear mm-hmm. a lot relationships take work. And I think mm-hmm. people say that a lot. I think it keeps people in relationships sometimes they shouldn't be in or, you know, I'm curious how much work is a healthy amount of work and what should that work generally look like? You know, I I, I think about it as, you know, the work to go into a relationship shouldn't be as much about cleaning up the messes. It's about getting ahead of it, setting expectations of going, right. what do you need from me this week? Like on Thursday, when you have this thing, what's the best way I can show up for you? Instead of yeah. I accidentally didn't show up and well, why didn't you call? Oh, I didn't realize you were going to need that. I'm so sorry. And then you're cleaning up a mess mm-hmm. instead of getting ahead of it. So I think sometimes to me that the unsexy work of a relationship is maybe finding time mm-hmm. once a week going like, can we just go over the calendar and let me know how right. I can, you know, love you this week. And you know, what could I kind of thing like planning, almost mm-hmm. treating it like a, maybe a little business if that's something that is uh, healthy with a relationship or helpful. Um, And the other work I kind of like to go is maybe on me. It's not always going to the problem for the solution. It's sort of, if I have feelings, let me first like call a friend. Let me first like, you know, journal. Let me first go for a walk before I bring this to my person or dump on them or bring my day home to them when, you know, it's not their job to be my therapist, you know, kind of, you know, I think when I hear relationships take work, I think myself and a lot of people think, well, we have to work on it together Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. I sort of see it as like, well, let me do my work. And then if there's, if it does involve both of us, then we can talk about that if that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. If you were to phrase the question as like, say, what are the 10 top things that person needs to do in a relationship to make the relationship good, healthy, then I would say, take care of yourself, communication, take care of yourself, communication. And I would list them out. And if you asked me the top hundred, I'd list them out alternating all the way to a hundred. Like it has to start with taking care of yourself because mm-hmm. if you don't take care of yourself, then you're then not healthy in so, so, so many ways. So, you know, if you're too hungry, too tired, too miserable, too distracted, like they weren't, weren't just not in a healthy place. So take care of yourself in those very basic ways. And then also psychologically, right? Like understand as well you can what's going on inside of you. What's, what's making you angry? What's making you upset? What's making you feel a certain way? What's making you feel ashamed? What's making you feel rejecting or vulnerable? Pay attention to self because then you bring that clarity to the communication. Is the vast majority of problems people have when they're, they're, they're people that are healthy enough to be in relationship in a healthy way. But, but things go wrong. It's around communication. It's around like you said something and it made me feel a certain way. Mm. And now I don't feel good. So now I respond from the feeling and I say something back to you and you feel a different way. And now we're going back and forth with something. Well, let's go back to the very, very, very beginning. Mm. You said something and I, and I felt bad. Okay, okay, let's assess that. Right? Did you say something that understandably could, should make me feel bad? 
Maybe, but usually not. Right, 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 right. Right, right. usually it's something that I could understand. Like that person should have been home on time. They should have been there on time. Or even something that's not so reasonable. That person should have been early or should have done this thing versus that thing. And then you can understand, okay, like what's going on? Is, is it about me? If it is, let me think about that. Is it acceptable? Is it reasonable? Should I think about that? Is it constructive criticism? Mm. Is what you're saying about me actually about you, right? Is it that, for mm. example, that person is insecure and you wanted me to show up earlier, bring flowers. I'm just making up, I don't know, because because you want something I mean, that's not actually reasonable to want, but, but what you're communicating is that you need something different and to say, oh, maybe it didn't f- feel so good. Like you ex- had expected something different and I don't want you to feel that, that way, right? Mm. Now maybe we're having a conversation and we realize, oh, if we just have an extra heads up or something different or something, then that person can feel more secure. I mean, I'm making up the example, but if we know ourselves pretty well, we, we're working on ourselves, we're taking care of ourselves, and we really get to communication. Like it matters what triggered that. Let's talk about that. Most of the time, it's not something. If you said something and I feel bad, like there's a triggering inside me. Let me stop and think, what did you say? Why did you say it? We can solve it right there. Mm. But before it escalates, and now we get so far away from what the actual thing was, because I feel bad and I say something and you feel bad and you feel worse and you say, and, and we're like, we're lost. Yeah. And then yeah. where does it go? Well, as soon as we get lost, people get back to the same themes. You don't care enough about me. Or I do something. It gets back just to the same theme. Mm. And then we're in what's called a cyclic maladaptive pattern. And the way to do that is not to try and snip it at the end of the branch, you know, or, or right. snip half the leave at the end of the branch. You go to the source of that problem, the root of that problem. And you look at the communication and triggering and you see our patterns and patterns that can be addressed. Maybe I feel just extra vulnerable unless the other person behaves in a certain kind of way, which which maybe is not unreasonable to ask of someone, but they would never know it on their own, right? Mm. And maybe that person needs me to say certain things or do certain things that like, I can't figure that out because neither of us are mind readers. But when I understand that, that's not unreasonable. And I actually do want to do that for the person. Now we're communicating. And if there's something that's over one person's boundaries, we can talk about that too, mm. right? Maybe it's over the boundaries, but I could work on my boundaries a little bit and give a little bit for that. Or maybe it's over my boundary and that's a boundary that I cannot that I cannot go over. So then it gets pushed back to the other person. Can that person adjust? If it's over a boundary that one can't go over and it's important to the other person, is it time, no, do we look at, do we need couples work or is, is this a sign mm. maybe this is the right relationship? So there can be a process that unfolds but it's got to start with the best understanding of self we can have and a willingness and ability, a willingness and ability to communicate, which people can do, even if they can do it amongst themselves or have it facilitated by others, but those things are necessary. And I think that something that is so helpful with having it be facilitated by others, i.e. couples therapy when necessary or, um, you know, wanted is oftentimes, like you said, knowing the self, what we're saying and how we're saying it aren't always congruous, you know? So right. we have this adage, say what you mean, mean what you say, don't say it mean. So for right. example, if you're going like, well, I'm sorry. Like, that's not, <laughs> do you right. know what I mean? It's like so many times, right. you know, even when we're trying to communicate, we're betraying what we're saying with how we're saying it. So right. I find, you know. Right. Um, so that we can disown what we're feeling. I said, ooh. I'm sorry. But if I say it in the way that you said, that's mm-hmm. not really sorry. So so the, the honesty and truth of self would be like, I. I didn't communicate that I'm sorry. 
So if I really feel that I'm sorry, I should communicate it differently. Mm -hmm. And if I don't feel that I'm sorry, then I should take stock of that and put that into words. Now, that happens in situations like what you just described, which is even though difficult, easier to see, the affect didn't match the words. Mm. But it can also, it can also map to words that are that one would think are very are, are like words that would be okay and congruous. So someone can say to another person, I, "Gosh, I feel so sorry about how that felt for for you and what it did." And I don't mean that. And I I really want us to have a safe environment between us. Mm. You think that sounds okay, and it is. The person's well-meaning, but maybe the words "safe environment" make that other person. Other people said that. Right, and they then were violent, or someone else said that, and those words ring because that's what the person said in between episodes of being denigrating. Right, so in a sense, no harm, no foul. Mm. Right, but that other person on the receiving end has to be aware that like that person's not trying to harm me. Oh, I I feel inside of me. So does that mean like that person saying awful things to me, or I can't be safe with this person, or does it have to be aware that there's something triggered in me? Let me be aware of it, then I can say to that person something like, "Thank you," and I I believe that you mean that i need to let you know too like those that particular wording of it yeah is like super triggering oh okay let's 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 put some different words to that is it um harville hendrix the imago therapy is ever something that you recommend or, or see value in of how you know you repeat what the person is saying back to them to mm -hmm. make sure you understand mm -hmm. what they're saying before right. you even respond like right. what i'm hearing is you right. felt abandoned yes. when i showed up late and didn't send a text not yeah. patronizing or not like right. you felt it. And is that true? Right? Is, is, it, am I person, hearing this yeah, right? Yeah, right. I, I, I'm trying to understand. It's, Mrs. Masherin, my sixth grade English teacher, from whom I learned a tremendous amount, used to say, and write on the chalkboard, don't assume or you make an ass out of you and, and me. me. Right? And there's a lot of wisdom in that. So don't assume the other person understands the communication. I mean, some communication is clear. We'll meet in five minutes, right? You say, yeah, okay. We understand one another. Mm -hmm. But once we start getting even a little more mm. nebulous than that, clarify the communication. I mean, I, I have learned that and, and believe me, I'm, I don't, I want to be better and I don't get it right all the time, but I really take pains to presume even use of very common words can be very different from you to me. And if I'm communicating with someone, I have to be able to feel that I'm making myself understood and that I'm understanding you, or I have to think differently about the communication, right? right. Because maybe it's not good communication to have. Like if we're going to do something together, work together, we have to feel like we understand enough about one another. We can communicate. If I don't feel that, then I'm going to act differently about that. Mm. And, and including in situations where like even, you know, like my primary care doctor. Like he's, we, we communicate really, really, really well. And okay, some of it might be we're both physicians, but it's not, it's not that mm. really. It's that I can describe something, he listens. Right? And then he says something, he wants to make sure I understand. And I'm like, great, that, that's a heuristic. I can go, I can feel a sense safe being taken care of by this person. But if, but if not, then mm. I would look for someone, you know, I wouldn't be okay with that, right? So we have to to think about, can we make ourselves understood? And I think talk about an, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, trying to make sure that we're understood. And sometimes it takes a little bit more time. And I think sometimes people get impatient with me mm. because I'm really like, wait, I just want to understand. <laughs> and I'll say, and this is a leaving joke. Well, I'm obsessive about it. You know, there's maybe a little bit of truth 
to that, that maybe I'm a little bit obsessive about it, but I don't want it to be too much of a good thing. But overall, I kind of stand by that because I think it makes so many less problems, mm-hmm. including what are our expectations of one another. So, so I think you're doing this and I'm doing this and we're going to put this, such and such of ourselves into it. Is that right? And I'm trying to understand, do you really get it? Do you really see it? Mm-hmm. And, and I like that I feel so good when someone else wants to see that I see it, right? And and I want to be clear that this isn't related to how smart or educated or or, or a person is. I think it's 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 a different factor. It's a separate variable of of a person just being able to pay attention to Mm. one to another person, like mentalizing the ability to conceive of what's going inside on inside of you. Right? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And if I can do that to some degree with me and with you, I'm going to be good at communicating. And you know, people are um, people can be very good at that or not so good at that. And I say, may, don't make any presumptions, but think about who is that person? Are we understanding one another? Because if we're not, then we have a set of thoughts that come from what are the potential consequences of that and what are the choice parameters? Here? And that, because, you know, that makes me think of two tools that um, have been helpful um, in the past for me. Um, number one is asking, this is from comedian Rick Glassman, um, who talks, you know, um, very publicly about his neurodivergence. And, uh-huh. um, he, when someone says something that he does, he says, um, can you say it again in a different way? Just yes. like, just any different right. way to make sure that I, you know, right. this way I'm just not getting it. And it's something that, you know, I think, you know, before I'd feel like embarrassed that I didn't get right. it or I'm stupid because I didn't understand right. what you're saying. I think we feel this pressure to have to like, you know, right. and to, um, respond also so quickly. I now am able to say in relationships, can I have a second to think about this? It's a, it's such an obvious thing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't occur to us so many times to go like, let me just, can I be mindful and careful with what I'm going to say? Let me just make right. sure if it's hysterical, it's historical. Let's just make sure I'm not saying something I don't mean. Let me just right. make sure I select the right word. I care so much about you that I just, can I have a second to think about this? Yes. Yes. It, it's such a crazy yes. thing that we don't do it more. Right. You know, and maybe it just wasn't it is. modeled for us. It, right, it is. You know, there's a person uh, in my practice, I've known her a long, long time, and she is neurodivergent. We, we did a, a training class uh, uh, a bunch of years ago around neurodivergence. She's absolutely brilliant. And she speaks about uh, neurotypical disorder. And, I, and it's, 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 it's funny and, and quite incisive how she talks about it. Like, with, like what's wrong with you? Hmm. Says, if, guess what? If I don't understand something, I say, I don't understand that. I, I understand inside of myself that I don't understand that. And I can reflect that back. I don't just run along pretending I understand things I don't. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just one of the ways you can describe how, you know, what does neurotypical doesn't mean. It doesn't mean better, right? right? It means different. And that difference has its own liabilities to it. And we'd be well we'd be well positioned people who are neurotypical to learn a little bit, yep. which can make not only for more compassion for, for a person who is different because we do value typicality in our society, whether we should or not. Mm-hmm. Right? I and mean, we certainly overvalue it clearly, but it, it can, it can help us look at ourselves too of, am I behaving in this way mm-hmm. where I don't really understand things? Or I'm not communicating things clearly. Somehow that's okay until mm-hmm. there's misunderstandings. Is that why there's a lot of misunderstandings? Right. And I think we would be well served by just stopping and saying, well, let me hold on. And just the simple, can I have a second to process that before I speak? 
can I have a second to think before I speak? Like right. it's something that, cause I think, I guess we value, we both come from places where people talk fast and you gotta right. be ahead of everyone and, and, or you're not smart or you're dumb right. if you don't have something to say right away. And it took me a little while to go, I, I, I have something to say, but can I just really, I will never be able to take it back. Right. So can I please right. have a second to just process that? I, nothing. I'm not right. trying to give you the silent treatment. I'm not trying to punish right. you or, you know, withhold love. But I just I also want to make sure what right. I, I say, what I say without saying it mean, you know, because right. I'm feelings are coming up, you know, right. which is a big part of the program of like being able to go, you know what? I have to make a phone call real quick. I'm having feelings coming up that have nothing to do with you right. that you don't deserve to right. have thrown at you. Can right. I just come back right. in 20 minutes? Is that okay? Right. You know, the permission to say like, can I take a break, go for a walk? You know what? Can I just go eat something real quick? Right. Chances are I just need a snack, right. <laughs> you right. know, little self-care right. moments exactly. like that, which is. Yes. And just how. Like think about how much you had to when you were when you were doing it right. You had to explain it. Mm -hmm. it. It speaks to the societal structure that that makes a predictability around that being received with surprise mm. or some negative affect. So you want to stop and think for a second about something big and important that you're going to say in a setting that carries some important. Like why is that strange? Right? Why would you have to explain yeah. it? Because the social structure is part of that, that press forward, that press mm. forward. And then we don't have that opportunity to stop and think. And I think it is worth explaining in that way because it's not apologizing. It's just saying it's not an easy thing to explain because even though it makes a lot of sense, mm -hmm. you know, people that can fall on you know, soil that says, oh, you are doing something bad. Like you're withholding from me because mm. you want to stop and think, right? It's like, whoa, 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 let's slow down. And then you also learn from that because someone who can't get that, mm -hmm. I mean, think what it means, can I just stop and think? I mean, the answer to that should be yes mm -hmm. in the vast majority of life situations, right? Yeah. So, so if someone doesn't understand that, and a lot of people don't, like, no, I want to answer for you right now about how you feel about me, right? They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, yeah. we, you know, we start learning, right? Can we learn about ourselves and we learn about the other person? Can the other person get it? Okay, even if that doesn't feel good, can mm. I accept that you want to stop and think? Or can I say... I think that does make sense. Like, wow, we're really, hmm. our tempers, our anxiety, like, it's, yeah, let's take a sec. Yes, that's good. Thank you. You de-escalated. So you learn about yourself as you learn about the other person because relationships do take a lot of work because working on ourself, mm -hmm. ourselves takes a lot of work and communication takes a lot of work. And it's not just work, like, like picking up rocks one after another. <laughs> it's the work of gaining within ourselves the health. Mm -hmm. That if we're having that conversation and you say, can I take a second away? It's a step away. And I, I know that that makes total sense, but mm -hmm. I'm worked up. I have to have within me the discipline, the ability to like stop and regain and not be driven by the emotions inside of me. So we both have to be doing something. You might have to hold back your emotions mm -hmm. that, are, that would tell you not to take that second and think. So you have to, you have to inhibit that and stop yep. that. Now you have to formulate some rational words and say, so you're doing something that's not easy. Right. And then I have to hear them and maybe I'm gonna, I have to do something that's not easy. So <clears throat> it's a lot of work and it's work of self that is in that moment. It's just between you and you, mm. whether you're going to be able to stop and take the second or blurt the thing out. It's between me and me. So I have to be the healthiest I can be. You have to be the healthiest you can be so that we can communicate in a healthy way and be healthy together. It is a lot of work in ways that are challenging to the self mm. and sometimes ways that are just a grind. You know, a lot of thought redirection, those addictive thoughts you were talking about, yeah. it's just redirecting away from them. And guess how many times you have to do that? Many, 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 many times. And does that get old? And does it seem repetitive? Yes. Mm. But all of it, 
but it all makes sense. So, so we do it anyway if we're if we're going to be healthy and take care of ourselves and communicate and be really in our relationships. And I think also the willingness to me, intimacy is often, I'm curious your definition, um, like the willingness to be embarrassed in front of someone, you mm -hmm. know, so to admit something that might be embarrassing of like, yes. can I take a second? Cause I feel the need to be right coming up. Right. Sure. <laughs> I don't want to admit that, but right. I don't want to do that. I feel some of my maladaptive little voices trying to help and I, they're not helping. So let me, I need to kindly tell them thanks for trying to help you like i just have a couple little things you know right. little maintenance things that and voices that don't belong here that aren't appropriate and right. um that's an embarrassing thing to admit you know right. um but can i have a second just to make sure that i'm having a right-sized reaction and an right. adult reaction um because yes I might just owe you an apology or say, oh, I'm sorry, yes. I wasn't clear. Or, oh, this text didn't send. Like right. we might, <laughs> how right. many times do you get into something? You're like, oh, with the green bubble. I'm sorry, I tried to send it. It didn't get there. You know, right. can I just do some recon, you know, so that I'm, you know, showing up with the, you know, right. Some of right. you just tend, I mean, go to war, go to court. Like, I'm like, let me just drop the charges. Right. Like, let's just look through and see what data we have and make sure that this isn't just a misunderstanding first. And Absolutely. Then, Absolutely. The, the, the ability to experience reflexive internal shame and then to be able to subsequently make an attribution to self without shaming the self mm. is among the highest measures of our health. So the ability to stop, take stock of things and to even acknowledge that or to know in a time like that, there's something for me to apologize for. I mean, if you think about throwing good money after bad, people use that, but we throw good all sorts of things after bad. I, I think it may be that no greater goodness is thrown after bad than in the service of the need to not be wrong mm. because of how much shame it generates. And, and, you know, you'll see people who where it's, it's, it's clearly in front of them and they're, they're, they're not like ill people, but they can't admit that they're wrong and like that's worth stopping like what does that mean why is it triggering that much shame in you the the ability to apologize like <laughs> i got mad at you because you know you didn't text me and like you did yeah <laughs> so 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 like, look i'm i'm sorry and like i learned something from it i like to go thank god i was wrong or, Huh, yeah. it's solved. What yeah. a relief. <laughs> yeah. And I'll learn something from yeah. it. I'll, I'll check twice. And then I realized, man, I, oh, even if you hadn't texted me, it wasn't a good reaction. And I got to own that to you. I mean, it's remarkable how you think about reparation, mm. which is one of the most powerful words, yep. you know, things that humans can do so that this ability to tolerate shame, make attribution to self, but not shame ourselves is one of those really core things. The ability to make reparation, right? To say in, in a way that I wronged you and I can acknowledge that I wronged you and I feel good enough about myself. Is a, there's enough good inside of me mm -hmm. that that shame is going to darken my soul or, you know, make me have to crawl under a table and never come out again. I, I, I can acknowledge that. And, and I also then know and trust you enough. We have a good enough relationship, whatever that may be, and on whatever level it is or situation we're talking about, that I can say that to you. Right? And I don't think you're going to not going to take it and be like, right, you were wrong. You know, that, that yeah. there's enough. That's how people build intimacy is sort of taking chances 
like that. And if you think that other person isn't going to use it against you, whether it's romance or it's on the job, it doesn't matter what it is. When the person does, well, now you learn about the other person. But more likely than not, if we're well-grounded, and if you're saying that to me, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, or I'm saying that to you, more likely it's a good bet. It's a good bet. And then you build intimacy or safety, security with that person who then responds with, thank you. I don't want you to feel bad either. And even if like, it made me feel really bad, but like, you're getting it, you're acknowledging it and you're telling me what you're going to do. Yeah. You're better like, okay, I'm okay with that. Right. And then there's enough, what gets called ego strength in people, like, which is not the modern, it's not egotistical. It's like whole self strength mm. that we can be in a relationship. We can communicate. We can be wrong. Cause guess what? It's going to happen sometimes. One yeah. of us is going to be wrong. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to step on the other's toes, no matter what, mm -hmm. what reason it may be. It's just going to happen. Right? Whether people are neighbors or they're lovers, it doesn't matter. Like there's there's going to be that. So like we we build that into it, which yeah, it, see how it all fits together. That is the opposite of perfectionism. If we think the relationship must be perfect and you must never step on my toes and I must never step on yours, like we have a zero percent chance of success. But if we're going to do our best and we're going to acknowledge that it's hard and we're going to bring our best and we're going to work on ourselves and we're going to communicate. Wow, we went from a 0% chance of success to really setting the odds in our favor. What I'm hearing is also something that, you know, I love like doing forensics on what's actually going on and being able to take the risk right. of being vulnerable, of going like, well, you didn't text me back. You told me you're going to text me at 2 and, right. and you didn't, I haven't heard from you today. It's like, oh, I just miss you. Right. It turns out I just miss you. Yes. That's what's actually going on. Right. And right. for whatever need to protect myself, that's, right. you know, the false right. self or whatever, I'm turning it into like, I need to, like, right. I miss you. Right. I, and I feel vulnerable oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is, I miss you in a way that is good. Like if I can take stock of, oh, I miss you. And we're going to see news, each other in two days. Yeah. Like, right, it's, it's like, it's good. It's okay. I don't want that to go in an unhealthy place, but I miss you. Like that's, that's recognizing a healthy thing and keeping it in healthy terrain. A lot of times that I miss you is anchored to, I feel insecure, I feel insecure attachment and I feel mm. vulnerable, which is a lot of why people just text people too much, call people too much is, you know, because there's an insecure attachment and then they're trying to soothe it externally. And it's like, look, mm -hmm. if we were together two nights ago and whatever we did and we went out, we had a meal, we did whatever and it went really, really well. And we're like, everything is great. And we're both going to be busy over the couple of days. We're going to see each other a couple of days from now. Mm -hmm. And we've had a couple of quick back and forth texts. Like, guess what that is? That's good enough. Right. Nothing is wrong. If we start thinking, well, I don't know, did, did when you said, sure, looking forward to it, did you really mean that? What was it? Oh, you know, now, now we start our, our insecurities come into play and we need to be able to ground and say, there is nothing wrong here. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so what's going on is that I feel an insecure attachment and I just want to ping that person and know they're there, right? But if I start doing that, I'm going to need to do more of that. Mm -hmm. I'm feeding addictive pathways. And now does that, does that go towards the last couple of times that happened, say, where... Now I got up to texting that person eight, 10, 12 times a day. And then guess what happened? Don't do it, girl. They, dis they disappeared, <laughs> yeah. right? Or they, they didn't want to. So what's really going on here is everything is okay. I'm behaving in accord with how things were when we last left and feeling in accord. And I have no reason to think that other person is either. So let yeah. me deal with that inside of me. Let me learn about that. And if also, because we don't want to be over reductionist, maybe it's not just that. Mm. If also I am missing you. Right, then, then I might say, okay, the next quick text, because we're just having a couple of day now in this period, I'll say, I just want to let you know, I'm missing you and I really look forward to 
the next time. Think about how healthy it is and how simple it is. Mm. But but person has to not have that reflex. So I miss I miss you now. Text. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like well, whoa, I, slow it down. Because right? in in like sorry, in because that's in in a newer thing. I'm I'm curious if in like a longer term thing, say we've been together a couple of years and it's like you were supposed to text me today. It's like, oh, this is great news. I still miss you. You know, I'm just, oh, sure. just yeah. to be able to go like instead of focusing on the negative going, oh, I still want to hear from him. Like right. this is all. And instead of you didn't text me. Right. I just taking the contrary action and just saying, oh, why do I feel hurt? Or re- yes. Because I just miss you and I want to hear right. from you. You know, right. so that in a committed relationship would be oh, great definitely. news. Yes. You know. In the beginning, yeah, it's interesting because I always tell my girlfriends when they're like, well, he hasn't texted, so I'm just going to text him or post something on Instagram so that he thinks about me and then he'll think to text me and da-da. And it's like, okay, so even if this all works, let's say this all works, this whole you're going to reach out and you're going to, oh, sorry, I texted you by accident or do whatever you need to do to try to get his attention, you'll always know that you manipulated him into it. And think about where that leads. So- if a person is doing that, the person on the other end knows it. Right? The vast oh. majority of times, yeah. whether words are put to it, the person knows that. Yeah. Right? That if I'm a little more distant, or even if I'm not a little more distant, well, now you're going to do all sorts of things to get my attention again. And if I see you doing that and doing more of that, guess what happens? Mm. Healthy people don't like that. Mm-mm. Healthy people find that unattractive. That's saying, mm. whoa, it's like, this doesn't seem like this person's going to be a good partner right do you really want to be with someone that you had to manipulate into it either right because because you're selecting for the person you don't want to be with because the healthy person you don't manipulate into being you know i mean i'm training with a little bit of a broad brush but that's how that works is a healthy person goes like whoa okay um this is not a i don't want to continue this Mm -mm. the unhealthy person goes oh good think about what that can resonate Oh, good, because maybe that person is so insecure Ooh. and says, "Oh, you you want me? I need to know that. I need to know that." Now you start an unhealthy dyad, or maybe that person knows right when a person behaves that way, they'll do whatever I want. Eventually, now envy and all the things that can come with narcissistic people come to the fore. So the last thing anybody wants to be doing is, "I'm behaving in a way that repels the healthy people." And attracts the unhealthy people. And that's why when people say, oh, there's nobody good out there, nobody good over and over, then a lot of times where I want that to go is let's look at how you have selected mm-hmm. for, you've reduced a pool, let's say, making up the numbers of 100 people, say, in the pool of potential partners, like 20 of them are really bad choices, right? Well, you reduce the, po- the, the pool of people to like maybe 26 and then and 18 of them are in it, right? So- so let's not do that. So by being aware, if I have attachment insecurity and it's in me to do that, that's those are issues of self. Mm-hmm. And once I'm because the same things that can work with work, you know, take care of ourselves and communication do apply earlier in the relationship too. If I'm taking better care of myself and I recognize the attachment insecurity, call a friend, talk about it in therapy, right, write right, it right. down, right? So, so then I'm better taking care of myself, and then I'm communicating with you the right way, mm-hmm. as opposed to communicating in a way. That pushes away the good, attracts the bad, undermines myself. You know, could this make- be? Yes. Could this be? Sorry, I just had like a bell go off. You know, I found in the past if I've ever been in a situation where I'm like thinking that way or insecure, like I usually like need to cry. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, there's usually like some sadness or something trying to you know get someone's attention or 
something, there's some sadness there. I'm trying to anesthetize clearly with some kind of communication. So what's, what am I trying to anesthetize? And it made me think that's a great way to um, maybe identify one of your abscesses. You mm -hmm. know, something I love when you, you talk about, of, yes. there might be an abscess there. Yeah. There might yes. be something that I don't, I don't need to blame this person because they're too busy or they're ignoring. That's, right. It has nothing to do with that person. Right. They, they just gave me the gift of being able to find one of these maybe abscesses. Yes. Yes. Look, crying can be one of the best coping mechanisms we have. Because sometimes people don't want to cry. And there's all sorts of reasons. You know, so if I start crying, I'll never stop. That never happens. Mm -mm. You know, if I start crying, I'll <laughs> curl up into a the we fetal position. Heard about that. And, yeah. Right, we'd know that. <laughs> we we'd know that. Seen it on the news. Right, there'd be an yeah. anti-cry, you know, <laughs> thing you'd stick in yourself so it doesn't happen. Right. No, crying is so healthy. Mm -hmm. it, it takes us. If there's distress and tension inside of us, it's gonna have its outlet one way or another. So does that person who cried? Do they not snap at somebody else? Do they? Do they not? You know, say something they're going to feel bad about later to their kid. Do they not mm. pick up a drink when, you know, they, they didn't want to pick up a drink? Mm. Right? So crying, it gets so much out of us. And it also calls our attention to like, this is important, you know? And now again, we can, like anything that can be, we can overuse anything that's healthy and then that's mm -hmm. a different story. But by and large, if you're crying about something, something healthy is happening and something, because you're paying down that distress in the moment in a way that is healthy. And, it's calling your attention to something that says, go look mm. at that. Is this something you always cry about or circumstance you always cry about? Are you crying about things you didn't before? Sometimes, you know, it tells us that person is entering a major depressive episode that may bring risk to life. Just one example, because you're crying about things you didn't cry about before. Some of those can be hallmarks of something we need to do something di different about. But it could be something vastly different where like, you can't always cry about things that are kind of like that. Yeah, because it's hitting a sore spot. Mm. And that sore spot goes back to something really early on. Like a person is, anytime I'm watching movies or I turn the TV on and, you know, they're like kids in a classroom around, you know, elementary school. I, I can't watch, or the person isn't aware of that, but, but like their mood can change during a movie. Mm. Right? And then they're very different. And the person they're with, is, doesn't know why they're different. They don't know that leads to a fight. Right. So to observe oneself, because if there's something that always makes us feel differently mm. or cry, maybe it's linked to something. Oftentimes they like say something super humiliating happened, you know, in elementary school, that person had that that kid who couldn't sit still, you know, or that kid who wasn't paying attention, come up to the front of the class and said, like, here's an example of how not to be, hmm. right? Don't be like Billy or Sally or, you know, whoever. Don't don't be like that. And now that, oh my goodness, right? The, hmm. It doesn't feel so bad about that. So recognize that. Now you can work on that thing so you're not triggered as much. And, you know, is it fair to say that that anger boils down to sadness a lot of the time? So often anger is more acceptable. Sadness is is unacceptable in many ways to, to be. We feel like we need to change it. Just like shame is unacceptable. So shame goes to anger. Mm. It's a lot easier to feel angry about me. So if I, if I, instead of maybe saying, I'm sorry to you, if too mm. much trigger, too much shame is triggered in me, it becomes a lot easier to just like get in a fight with you. Yep, right? Yep. Or to then go to something different. It's not really saying sorry. It's being like overly, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like I'm so terrible. Mm -hmm. That's just anger towards me. Yeah. So, so anger beckons as it's a lot easier as a go-to than having to sit with sadness. And if you sit with sadness or sit with feelings of shame, they pass. Mm. That's why we talk about sitting with the emotions. Because again, back to the addictive pathways, 
if pathways are reinforced in quote unquote addictive ways, where when I feel shame, I get angry, whether it's habitually at me or it's habitually at the other person or it's at bo- it's both, then I start creating those addictive, those over connection of neuronal pathways that say, now I'm a guy who relies a lot on anger Mm. when he feels ashamed. And now I'm stereotyping myself in unhealthy ways that are going to be hard to get out of because if I react with anger, that's not going to be adaptive adaptive in my life. Then it's a lot easier to say, oh, I'm doing something Mm. like that. Or maybe I kind of chronically do something like that. Or things are getting more difficult. One area of my life, I'm doing more of it. Go look at that before you have these addiction pathways hijacked by anger and now you're avoiding shame and sadness that you need to sit with and feel by feeling angry and boy isn't your life traje- trajectory is going to start not going in a direction that starts creating problems with friends and family and romance and kids and work and it's, it's really good. helped me like i remember it's like as a light as a hack to get through the world because there are so many angry people everywhere we see them online we see them at the grocery store we see them you know in parking lots and you know, um, one time I was talking to this is maybe six or seven years ago, talking to this um, therapist and I was like, well, this person, then she yelled at this person and then she yelled at this person and then she yelled at this person and then she came to yell at me and da, da, da. And she just responded by saying, sounds like she's in a lot of pain. Right. And it was just kind of this like, oh gosh, I can have compassion with people that have anger because ultimately there's probably a sad, they were hurt. And so it was just, it's something that helps me to not enter into the emotional contagion with it. I can just like, this might sound corny, but like send love to that person and go like, oh, this is just. Such an important point because you are delinking, like delinking two train cars, their anger expressed towards you from how you feel about you. So accurate attribution. So if, if you're, if you yelled at this person and that person and that person and that person, now you're yelling at me. If the conclusion is, oh, you're angry, hmm. then I'm separating myself from your anger. So if you say to me that I'm incompetent, I don't know what I'm doing, instead of me taking the heart, well, am I incompetent if I feel bad about myself? Or how dare you say that, right? I just realized, hey, this isn't about me, hmm. right? This is a way often of dealing with, with prejudice. You know, pre- what is prejudice? Prejudgment. That's what the words are saying so that the, the, that person knows nothing about you, right? If they say, if they declared something mm-hmm. about you that you must be a certain negative way because of whatever it may be, gender identification, skin color, religion, whatever it may be, it's that that's it's about you in the sense that it can be harmful to you and it can create social scenarios. So it's it's not that the per, that the person can't see that's not something good that's happening, but it's not about you. And that, that person isn't saying something bad about you. That person through the lens of ignorance, because prejudice is, the, the prejudgment of prejudice is ignorance. There's something they're angry or distressed about and it can help protect the person from feeling bad mm-hmm. about it. That's projection. That person feels bad about themselves in some way or another. So they're projecting it out onto you and they don't even know the first thing about you. Mm-hmm. And that that can help protect the person, whether it's prejudice or whether it's that person just really angry and I got to like, whoa, 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 that's not about me. And and it allows for there to be goodness in the face of something that's not good. Mm-hmm. So if I can say, as you're describing, hey, that's not, that's not about me. Then what you can send out love and goodness. Why? Because you're not tainted or or diminished or demeaned by the problem inside of them. And if say that person is saying mean things to you or, or denigrating things because say they are prejudiced, say they're, they're mm. misogynist or whatever's going on. They're like, hey, that's still not about me. Like yeah. that is your problem, not mine. 
right? I'm not attributing that to me. So it can be on that level or it can be, okay, that person is not coming at me through a lens that tells me they have a very, very big problem, but but the anger expressed right now is still about them. Mm. And whether it's their prejudice or they're just letting themselves go too much with their anger, it's not going to diminish me. Right? It doesn't take away that I have goodness in me to give to that person anyway. Right? As, as a, a person, a, a real branch point in my own life was some very, very significant conflict with, with people in, in a way that led me to start having some very negative thoughts and feelings and um, and it kind of became too pervasive in me. And then a person who knows me said, can you, look, the challenge to you is, can you take inside of you that even if this doesn't go well for you, you can still say, I wish you a good life. Right? Because if not, it's hurting you in a sense of hurting your soul or hurting your spirit. So we have to be able to say, it's not that whole people don't aren't held accountable, mm. right? But you're not right. taking away the goodness inside of me. If that person is saying overtly prejudiced things, there's accountability measures in our society, whether we think there should be more or less, there's, there's something different. We're not saying it's okay. Mm-hmm. But we're saying that is about you. That is not about me. Mm-hmm. And then as we protect ourselves, we don't have to hide away the goodness in ourselves by saying, well, now I'll insult you right back. Like now what's going on there? Now we're, we're denigrating ourselves I, I might say, I might think I'll come against you later. Can I, I'll vote against you. Mm-hmm. Or when, when you may be vying for something and I know something about you, that means I don't trust. Like It's not saying I won't make accountability if I can or remember that that thing is there if it's really something bad. Or mm-hmm. just, I might remember you're a lovely person who sometimes gets a little mm-hmm. too angry. Whatever it is, I'm holding that inside of myself. Whatever it may be, it's not going to denigrate me. A mantra that works for me a little bit is like, don't take the bait. Right. Like don't, as you move through the world, there's going to be all these temptations to enter into other people's pain. It's it's just like, don't take the bait, like just bobbing and weaving and like. Because the bait is really bad, right? It's not take the bait and then that person goaded you into something and, you know, you spent 10 minutes or 15 minutes kind of agitated when you wouldn't have been. It's that and it's a lot worse Mm. because ultimately what envy does is it does bring the other person down. Mm. If I can project out to you my anger, frustration, shame, right? The, the, the things that aren't, I can't face inside myself and I can get you to feel like I feel and then you start acting like I feel. Now you're saying me things to me and I'm saying them to you, then, then I've absolutely taken you down. And why am I doing it in the first place? Because somewhere inside of me, in this example that we're giving, there's a sense that you're better than me. So I'm going to project that badness out to you and make you less. Bone mm. chilling. Right. And okay. we don't have to do that. We can we can say, no, I recognize that. We don't recognize it all the time, Mm-mm. but we can be pretty good at it and we can protect ourselves against it. And this is where the things you and I are talking about now are not esoteric. Like we can really understand that. And we can make that difference between hold some, holding someone accountable and remembering if that's what there is to do or forgiving or whatever they may be. Mm. And now also that is not going to take me down. It is not going to diminish me. I won't let it happens. You can say those things and I can at least, whether I can walk away, maybe I can walk away or maybe I can say something kind to you anyway, mm. or if I'm going to be distressed, I'm going to be the minimum and I'm going to, I'm going to exit is I'm not going to let the awfulness going on in you roll downhill and, and become my awfulness too. It's like, like a g- good defensive moving through the world, like pot, like, you yeah, know, um, right. I'm often fascinated um, by 
right now what seems to be a hypersensitivity among people. You know, we see it with this person, you know, said the wrong pronoun and they're, right. you know, um, upset. This person was called the wrong thing and they're upset. Um, this seeming hypersensitivity and then also this um, mass desensitization at the same time. You know, it seems, right. you know, like um, I'm just, you know, we've gotten to a point where we can see a school shooting in the news and keep scrolling. You know, I'm always pretty horrified. Um by how quickly I can just go, oh, the school shooting happened. And then you're like, uh, how did how did I get to this point right. to where I was just able to scroll past that without, you know, ending up in fetal position in the corner or, you know, right. trying to do something about it. Um, and just curious, is there a healthy slash helpful amount of horror <laughs> to consume you know right now it's you know with what's going on in the news it's the instinct is to maybe look away you know and then i get scared if i look at it too much i'll get desensitized i'm just curious if there's any um advice on an appropriate diet of consuming um and it might be case by case based on your yeah. specific you know neuroconstellation but a specific diet even if it makes you uncomfortable you know um, that feels like the moral step forward, you know? Yeah. yeah. It, it varies dramatically across people, mm -hmm. but there are um, ideas, rules to put in place for ourselves, which it's not helping you, whoever you are, mm -hmm. to traumatize yourself through someone else's trauma. The way that we can be traumatized in the sense of what that really means, not some pie in the sky definition, but we are changed going forward. That can happen from acute traumas. Someone's assaulted. Someone dies. We, we can understand that. It can happen from chronic traumas, including the chronic trauma of being denigrated by society in a prejudicial manner or things that can happen that happen over time. So it can be acute, it can be chronic, it can be vicarious too. We can be very, very traumatized. This is where the, 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 um, categorization makes no sense in the field where the, the the ability of trauma to cause a trauma syndrome in someone is valid if the trauma was vicarious in the service of work or something. It was like, you think about it, it makes no sense. Like, mm -hmm. how could that be more artificial? What that says is we can be traumatized vicariously. And if we weren't trying to be over reductionist, we would, we would see the clearness, the obviousness of that. We can be traumatized because we see the truth of it. We see people who are changed and there is psychological and neurobiological and neuroimaging. Like there's modern science can tell us this and they're changed vicariously by the experience of the trauma of someone else. Oh. Don't do that. So if you know that there are awful things going on in a place and you know it and the knowledge of that is inside of you and in some way you're responding to it. Now that may mean that you're doing something practical. You're going somewhere and doing something or if all you can do is you know, give $3 then you're giving $3 or maybe you can't do any of that. But what you could do is say, I can't do anything over there. But if you look a little, you've passed me on the street with a frown, I can give you mm -hmm. a, a, a smile. And I was like, okay, you're doing like that's You don't need to, to do more. And if you do more, that will be bad for you. It will mm. take away. There's more inside of you that's not good. And you see that person with a frown and you're, you're not going to be able to meet that with a smile. Now for other people, it might be different where they feel like, I, I don't understand. I need to understand more like what's going on, mm -hmm. what's happening, what are the logistics? Okay. Maybe you're that kind of person and learn about that. Mm. Right. So, so gear, what, what is it that keeps you 
uh, we would say a, a conscious and cognizant citizen mm. in the world, which means like know what's going on. You know, one, I should also know what's going on on my own street, right? Is there someone sick three doors down? Is there someone who's had a tragedy that everyone was really supportive, supportive of for a couple of weeks or a couple of months? Because there's suffering going on over there far away, there's, is there suffering going on here? So know what's going on around us in the social systems from you know, our home, the dyads that mm. we're in with just another person, our smaller environments, you know, like neighbors, um, the bigger environments of our larger communities all the way out to the planet and, and be aware of that in a way that we can be conscious and cognizant and conscientious citizens. But like, that's it, right? That's, that's it. That's, we don't need more than that that just goes over that line and now traumatizes us. It doesn't serve anyone. It's fascinating um, that you're saying this because it's like, it, I do see so many people who are in their house focusing on something that's happening, you know, um, 10,000 miles away, but they don't talk to their neighbor, right? <laughs> you know? And right. so it's almost thinking more micro and focusing on what you can control. So you're not just constantly doom scrolling, getting into obsessing over things you can't control. Right. Um, for maybe an adrenaline hit or whatever. Um, but that's something that is, I think, should be obvious and right. it doesn't occur to a lot of people. Like how right. can I just focus on, you know, what I can control and yeah. who I can help with in my vicinity? Yeah. Yeah. Even so my my um 92 year old father who uh I think at one point thought a podcast had something to do with fishing. Okay. So so he's not gonna hear he's not gonna hear this. Although someone may tell him about it. It's tricky because it's also being careful with, you know, the same way you would be careful with your diet and what you put in your body, being careful of, you right. know, what you're putting in your mind. I see, you know, friends of mine that go from listening to a murder podcast to then watching a murder documentary and then watching the news and watching all this horrific right. <laughs> stuff. And you're like, you might have to be the person at the party who goes, you know what? I haven't seen that. Right. Right. In fact, I choose, I choose not to see that. It says, I don't think that I'm ignorant to it, but I choose not to see that. That's an okay thing to say. Yeah. Then it probably other people will, you know, this, that will click with other people too. And look, at times I have written a prescription. Like, this is true. And there, there may be people who listen to this who are like, right, he's, he's done that. Where I, I have some gravity or some faux gravity either and will behave a little differently because it's a marker for something different. I'm like, look, I'm going to write a prescription. And it's just really important. That you follow. It's like I very rarely would say things. Like so, and prescription is no, no more news, right? And like, look, you take this. Don't take it to a pharmacy. You take it home and plaster it somewhere. Mm. You know, get a set of glasses where you know they, something extends off the front, and you're looking yep. down like when people are in marching bands. Like you, you have to do this because it's not, it's hurting you. And there's no shame to not consuming that news. Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you're hardened to it. It doesn't mean that you don't care it's part of taking care of yourself that's right i love that just i think it, it would take someone like you to give a lot of people permission <laughs> to do that and to have restraint around that and it's like i'm not mm -hmm. dumb it's not that i don't care it's just that right. this is like not productive and it's not helping right and it's just self-flagellation at this point right right and then as a person who's gone through that that i i, I did and perhaps with that perfectionist kind of way but also in a way of of having that feeling that unless I'm steeped in, you know, in the awfulness of what is happening in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I was a math minor, but a political science major. And you know, I studied a lot of World War II history. And I do find it fascinating for understanding things about the world and about mm -hmm. human psychology. But I realize I don't, I don't need to steep myself in you know, just the utter terror and misery. And it took mm -hmm. realizing that and seeing like, this is not 
okay. Like, what, what is it that this is in service of, mm-hmm. right? It's in the service of learning and, and potentially making me a better person, a more knowledgeable person, a better person in the world around me. And I understand the awfulness. I understand. And you can't completely avoid, you know, coming really directly face-to-face with that if, mm. you're, if you're involved in or studying or learning about any difficult situation. But, but I, can, I can try and steer clear of a lot of that because I am better. I'm more effective. I'm less likely to be depressed. Like, it was mm-hmm. made a big difference mm-hmm. for me to realize this because that's just one example. But I was doing a lot of that in, you know, in, in life back in my 20s. Um, even before the death of my brother, then had an indication to, in a macabre way, I'm going to understand all these awful things mm-hmm. and, and, and fix. And that is like, that's not how to be better, healthier, happier. Like it does no service to self or, or other. And that ability to, as you said, maybe give people permission to do that comes from a, a place of having needed to be given permission. Yeah. It's just make it, it's like, it's like conditioning my brain to be negative about people and to see the worst in people and right. make this narrative that people aren't safe. You know, it's right. just as like, right, just be afraid. We're programming time. ourselves, you right. know, it's just, it's, right. it's the neuronal trans- connections. You strengthen those connections. Well, guess what? You strengthen those connections, right? Mm. So they're going to come more and more to the fore and, you know, connections of compassion, connections of interest, um, those are, are generative, right? Those are, those are good, but connections of fear and terror, like there's enough of that going on in the world. I don't, I don't need to foster that in myself. You're a rock star. Thanks Thank for that doing a this. Very kind assessment. No, I, I it's, it. I've, I've said it to many people. Like there's just the way that you say things just like are so soothing to the brain. And it's just, it's like, remember the game te- uh, Tetris mm-hmm. where it, you would get like a T and it would go into a hole and it would just like perfectly lock. And it just like, there's something just so satisfying about the symmetry of it or something. Yeah. Thank you. So it's just like, you're so gifted at not only knowing all this stuff, but conveying it in a way that thank dumb you. people can understand. No, thank, <laughs> no, thank you so, so much. And it's, it's a pleasure to to do this because you are so, exact with words and, and i think in in what you do for a living the words matter and the nuances of the words matter and it's really fun to do this because i know that that um real interest around words and meaning and understanding i i see that so it's, it's made it really fun to we do. fixed society i think we did classic us it's, it's gonna be completely different when we come out of here <laughs> i it's, it's changed instant that's all yes. we needed to do i feel um, it too you're such a dream. I could oh, talk to you, you forever, but I'm going to try to thank be you. less selfish and I'm sure I'll harass you again to come back. Thank what a you. dream. Thank Thanks you so for letting me take you such weird, spooky places. I enjoyed it. It was really fun. Oh, thank you for having me. I end these very awkwardly. Don't ride elephants. Goodbye, Dr. Paul Conti. <laughs>